This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You have an assignment, and I expect you to carry it out objectively and professionally. Then you have my resignation, sir. We're not a country club, 007. Effective immediately. Your license to kill is revoked. And I require you to hand over your weapon. Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the movies that time forgot. I'm Green, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time super spy, Andrew Phillips. You ain't seen me, right? (laughs) And this week we're returning to a franchise that has given us feminist icons such as Xena on a top, Pussy Galore, and Plenty O'Toole, as we once more aim our sights on everyone's favourite womanizer, James Bond, in... License to kill. You missed out Holly Goodhead. Holly Goodhead, of course, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was right there. <laughs> but first, roll the trailer. I want you to know this is nothing personal. It's purely business. Killing me won't stop anything, Sanchez. See you in hell! <laughs> This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You're going after Sanchez, aren't you? Are you crazy? Make a sound, and you're dead. No! Your license to kill is revoked. Effective immediately. In my business, you prepare for the unexpected. Problem solved. I'm more of a problem eliminator. (laughs) (laughs) This is where it ends, Commander. He's got to be stopped. Starring everyone's favourite second choice, Timothy Dalton, Licensed to Kill sees James Bond turned into a rogue agent seeking revenge for the murder of his best mate's wife's chinchilla. Does this unloved entry in the Bond series deserve a second chance, or is there no way back for this STD-riddled pensioner? 
Well, that's what we're here to find out. And Andy, you chose License to Kill as our nomination for this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. And could you share a little bit of reasoning as to why? Yeah, I think it was a uh, pretty much a given that we were always going to do another Bond. Definitely, yeah. Because yeah, we do like James Bond quite a lot. And uh, yeah, this is the film that we've had to not mention for quite a long time, especially when we were doing our little um, our first James Bond no, because podcast. we always knew that License to Kill was going to be a film that at some point we would cover, so yeah. we didn't want to mention anything about it in that podcast, yeah. just in case we give something away as to what we actually think yeah. of it. Yeah, and also when we named our top five James Bond films, yeah. we had to admit yeah. this one, for risk of revealing our thoughts on it, because this is a film that definitely has a lot of polarizing opinions. It's probably one of the... It's the one in the series that has the most polarized views i think some people absolutely love it yeah some people really don't like it it is the marmite of the bond series this one people either love it or they hate it yeah which i find ironic now because for the longest time it was definitely the odd one out Mm -hmm. and it was much easier to understand why people loved it and hated it but then when you start getting people who love the daniel craig films going no i didn't really like license to kill too much that's what really baffles me because it's the one that's almost like a prototype Daniel Craig film. It is. It's almost like Timothy Dalton was a couple of bonds too soon and then they went off to do Casino Royale and that was exactly the film that he wanted to make. Yeah. And at times it out Daniel Craig's Daniel Craig. Yeah. In a lot of ways. There's a couple of things in it that... Um, like holdovers from holdovers the from, the, from the era that yeah. they were in. But um, this was a film that really broke new ground and it undid them in quite a few ways as well yeah, so yeah. we'll go into that a little bit later and obviously this is why we're doing it on this I mean, podcast and that becomes incredibly more so apparent when we actually uh, look at the reviews because there's a review yeah. that I have here that is very much uh, talking about what the Bond series should be yeah. and how this film represents what it isn't so I mean it'll be something for our listeners to look forward to yeah um, I mean that's the thing you get Bond fans I mean hardcore Bond fans I mean I've even got a book from back in the day, I think it was written about 97 or something like that, and it does a proper review of every single film that goes into every single aspect. It like goes into the pre-title sequences, yeah. what Bond's like, the action sequences, and it, and it rates them out of 10. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a rating at the end of what the film should be. And it's funny that you're getting films like You and Live Twice getting like 94% or something yeah. like that, and this gets 31% in the Oh book. my gosh. And they really didn't like this film. It's funny that they give Bond himself as a character, they give him zero out of ten. They don't think that Timothy Dalton's portrayal of Bond in this film has anything to do with James Bond at yeah. all, which is hilarious because it's very, very close to Ian it's Fleming's James Bond. utterly baffling as well <laughs> when you approach something like Casino Royale and see the Bond that is portrayed oh, in yeah. that as well, yeah. which is somebody that is gritty, is rough around the edges, yeah. is like a rough diamond yeah. and it's... Um, Willing to get his hands dirty and a bit rugged as well. So the only thing they rated well, they gave ten out of ten. In fact, was the action. Oh yeah, and it is ten and out of ten. The, and like the action sequences are some of the best action sequences mm-hmm. in the whole series. Well, before we get any further, let me ask you: What experience do you have with License to Kill as a film? I mean, when did you first watch it? Because this is obviously a film that we mm. have prior experience yeah, yeah. with before this podcast. You know what, I didn't realize that the film existed until i got into bond property which was around about golden i think that's when i really started getting into bond anyway because it had lain dormant for so long like you know six years which now doesn't feel that long now 
Especially when we had the big four-year layoff between Skyfall yeah, and Quantum. Yeah, it's a blink of an eye, really. But it had been dead for quite some time, and GoldenEye was its big relaunch. And I remember getting GoldenEye on video, and this was the first time, I think, where they'd laid all the Bond films out on video as a series, and they all had um, homogenized video sleeves like they yeah. all had was that a, the a black theme. the black video case with the um yeah they, it was it. the first time they've been digitally remastered and yeah. it was the artwork was all the same the layout was yeah. all the same but yeah i got goldeneye and in the back of the actual video there was a big spread where they showed all the video covers yeah and there were some that i weren't familiar with because at the time i was only really only really was aware of sean connery and roger moore mm-hmm. i'm like who's that and who's that and I was putting out George Lazenby and Timothy Dalton. I had no idea yeah. that they'd played Bond. And yeah, obviously Timothy Dalton was right at the end. And um, the cover that they had for License to Kill, which was like a green cover, looked really intriguing because it looked like this guy was serious. He meant business. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it really intrigued me. And um, I think I saw the film fairly shortly after. After Goldeneye? Yeah. I didn't like it that much when I first watched it. I don't think it was for me. Mm-hmm. at the time because i think i was only about eight so <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was not a film for eight-year-olds this one i think i preferred living daylights for like the longest time yeah and it wasn't probably really until i think casino came out that i really changed my opinion on that and, and yeah started to read the books more and then as soon as i started reading the books i'm like oh yeah this is um yeah definitely one of the best of the whole series i agree as well and i had a very similar experience with license to kill um as yourself in fact only I would say the difference was that I came to a different conclusion, which was that License to Kill was my favorite Bond film mm. for the longest time. Mm. And um, again, it was around about the time that Goldeneye was coming out. I think for us at our age, it seemed like a bit of an event film mm. because for many yeah. people, Bond had been away for an unprecedented amount of time, which was a whole six years. Yeah. <laughs> which well, it's, <laughs> it's like when they brought Star Wars back. It's like when yeah. Force Awakens came out. Obviously not the same kind of impact because bond's never been as popular as star wars but you're talking a similar mm-hmm. kind of thing well to a certain generation to a certain demographic i would say it's certainly an apt comparison oh yeah it's, that's a key moment in my yeah film life that coming out because it was it was huge mm-hmm. when it came out and the fact that it did so well yeah after this obviously we'll go into what this did later on it was uh it just brought everything back to life which and i i think golden is a great film but viewing it now and especially when we viewed it twice in the marathon it's a solid film but it does feel like a step back it does it feels like it's sending bond on the wrong path Mm. but yeah that film was a big event for us at that time and i remember my parents went off to see it and i didn't actually go to the cinema to see it i didn't catch it until it was released Mm. on vhs and instead i stayed home and watched license to kill on vhs (laughs) and that was my first bond film yeah and timothy dalton was always the black sheep in our family when it came to approaching Bond, who's everybody's favourite Bond was. Obviously, in my family, it was Sean Connery. Everybody loved Sean Connery. Yeah. But I was there. I loved Timothy Dalton's Bond. I loved Licence to Kill. And I think it's because at an early age, I was more into the um, American action films rather than Bond. Mm. I didn't really like Bond all that much when I was quite young. Mm. Instead, I was I liked films like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. <laughs> and yeah. License to Kill is actually the film that straddles that line between your American action films, but yeah. also retains that British feel as well of Bond. And it was the gateway drug for me. It was yeah. the film that opened the door for me to Bond. And then Goldeneye came out and took that further. Mm. But it wasn't until Casino Royale came out that I actually began to watch um, with yourself the Bond yeah. films in their entirety. 
So License to Kill, I'll always owe something to it for being that gateway drug. It's funny you saying that it's a it's a gateway one as well because for the very reasons, and it was very consciously trying to keep up to date with those films, and they obviously hired several people, not just in the cast, but also on some of the crew yeah. that were involved in some of those films, especially Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. There's several crew members and cast mm-hmm. members that are involved it's in both those films. Especially, you can especially note it in the music from oh, Michael yeah. Kamen. Yeah. But you've even got cast members. You've got yes. Robert Darby. Of course and, you have, um, yeah. And you've also got Grand L. Bush. Yeah, the Johnson to his Johnson. Yeah. I think he was also in Lethal Weapon. You've got some really strong connections between the films that it's trying to capture the market yeah for but it's those elements that actually switched the american audience off this film it's funny when you watch it because it's probably one of the most american bond Bond films films, but that's part of the reason why the americans didn't like it they liked how english everything yeah they don't watch bond to see american action and that's the part of the reason it failed yeah but at the same time, I still find that funny because it's still, for me, even though it wasn't made in England, and it, it, yeah, it still has a very British identity. It does. For me, yeah. It, Bond as a British character still comes through very strongly for me. Especially now that you can watch it and frame it against Daniel Craig's tenure as Bond. Yeah. You can really see its Britishness. It no longer feels like the odd one out mm. anymore because there are other films very much like it in the series now. Yeah. So I think for a while it was almost like its, um, its Britishness was dwarfed by the fact that it was, like I say, even tried to be American. Whereas now we do have more films that embrace the themes that were thought to be American action film themes and make yeah. them all the more British, really. The other main thing that people didn't like it for as well as that it was trying to give greater realism to the series, even more so than these other films. Because in um, films like Lethal Weapon and Die Hard, you've got these villains who are very... They're almost like more like Bond villains in a way. They're larger than life. Yeah. They're very black and white. Yeah. And uh, they're very more sort of cartoony. You got Hans Gruber and Die Hard. In fact, you can pick any of the Die Hards apart from maybe the fourth or fifth. Yeah, and um, yeah, they do have quite like cartoony characters, and that's embraced. And then Lethal Weapon, you have Gary Busey. Yeah, he is a walking cartoon character. Whereas with License to Kill, they bring the style over from that, but in the villain himself and the, the actual general situation, it's much more realistic. It's much more closer to real life and what can actually happen. Yeah, he has no plan to take over the world. He doesn't want to raise cities to the ground or anything like that. He's a drug lord. And that's what the film's about. There is nothing grand about this villain. He's simply a bad dude. Yeah. And I like that about this film. Yeah. That's ah. that's why it stands head and shoulders above what's around it. It's the really strong backbone behind this film that they did so much research into how all this works. And uh, yeah, it does feel like you're pitting Bond against something that's actually happens and is actually plausible. And there's nothing in the film that goes... I mean, you know, obviously all the stunts and things are quite outlandish, but it does feel like a real situation yeah. that everyone's in. And that's what I love about it, And but that's what everyone didn't like about it yeah. at the time, which I find weird. Well, before really we weird. truly start to break down this film and start to discuss what worked and what didn't work, we really do need to set the scene as to when this film was made because it's one thing that we like to do mm. on Best Forgotten Movies is discuss the history behind films as well as the films themselves. So you are our Bond expert. Um, I have a few facts right here as well that we are sure to get into, but um, can you start to paint a picture of um, License to Kill and how this film got made? I mean, do we have to go as far back 
as a view to a kill. Yes, and we do. Talk yeah. about just how Timothy Dalton got cast and the controversy surrounding that. Yes, yeah, we do. I mean, there's a couple of things, not just in the casting, but some like there's some numbers stuff as well. So, yeah, we'll go back to View to a Kill, which was made in 1985, and that was the last film starring Roger Moore. He was yes. 57 at the time of filming, mm-hmm. and uh, definitely looks it. I remember reading that he was older than the Bond girl's mother. Yes. Uh, and that, that was one of the main things that actually yeah. persuaded him to bow out of the role. I remember yeah. him joking afterwards, I was only about 400 years too old for the part. <laughs> and it does look like he's had eye work done because yeah. he looks constantly surprised throughout the entire film. <laughs> There's a real visual look difference between <laughs> Octopussy there is. and V to a Kill. I mean, I'm always of the opinion that I feel that Octopussy, or even For Your Eyes Only, should have been his last Bond film because yeah. I feel that those two films are much better and he's doing much more positive things, especially Fear Eyes Only. I mean, if Fear he had ended on Fear Eyes Only, yeah. I think his reputation would have maybe been a bit better. Yeah, and he wouldn't have been looked at as being so long in the tooth. Because I, I didn't watch Roger Moore Bond films until we really met and got into Bond uh, together. And I didn't really... I, I didn't like Roger Moore films. No. I'd seen clips and I'd seen bits of films here and there that my dad had watched. And I'd always seen Roger Moore as being too camp for me and it's going back and watching films like for your eyes only i realized that actually he wasn't all that camp it's those films here and there in between that are just they've gone too far they've embraced those campy elements too far yeah yeah and i think if sean connery hadn't come back for never say never again yeah we might have got a new bond actor for octopussy Mm -hmm. but i think it's because when that was announced they wanted to make sure that they had somebody established in the role yeah it was like a it was like a safe pair of hands yeah as such so that was never going to happen for octopussy but i kind of always thought that and think he even states that he did one film too many yeah but it was very widely panned at the time and has continued to be known as definitely one of the lesser films i mean it's got a couple of good elements you've got the christopher walken factor in it but i mean a lot of it is very tired it is yeah you definitely see that that particular formula had uh, run its course. I mean, if you watch it through the right lens, you can still get some enjoyment. I mean, out of yeah, it, I mean, I, I enjoy. It's... I mean, I enjoy most Bond films anyway. I mean, there's only a couple that I kind of find hard to yeah to sit through. But but you could definitely tell that yeah, it's that certainly formula run its films. course and everything had outstayed its welcome, and really should have ended the film earlier, the yeah. film before, and it was reflected in the numbers as well because it didn't do yeah. So box office wise, it made. 152.4 million based on a 30 million budget yeah. at a time which for most films is a big hit i mean even for films of today that's yeah great money it is yeah. but when you compare it against films that have gone before that's actually the lowest grossing roger moore film i think bar man with the golden the man gun. with the golden gun uh, yeah. but yeah that's it it reached a, a low point basically we get on to the 15th bond film which is the living daylights they knew there and then that they were going to have a new actor. I mean, Roger had gone and they had to find someone else. And this is where all the problems come. And I still feel that this is the reason why people have never really warmed to Timothy Dalton and why Pierce Brosnan is, I think, um, for me personally, overloved. Yes, especially oh, at the time. Yeah, especially at the time when he was actually in his actual tenure. Yeah, I mean, talking about Pierce Brosnan just for one moment, mm. I think the reason that Pierce Brosnan is overloved is because, 
our generation are wrapped in nostalgia and that's why we're getting so many films these days that are based on properties from our generation's past it simply reminds them of being younger it reminds them of the bond films coming out back then even though they weren't any good that's the reason we're getting power rangers movies and shit like that today we get into full-blown casting for bond which hadn't really happened properly Mm -hmm. since george lazenby really yeah because roger moore was pretty much guaranteed bond for live and let die i mean a couple of people in the role that they were looking for for then but i mean they hadn't really done a proper serious search since the late 60s so dalton was approached around this time and he was one of the contenders amongst others and then we get on to pierce brosnan who they'd known since fewer eyes only because he was husband of cassandra harris who had starred in fewer eyes only yes they pegged him because they thought he looked like a potential James Bond. And at the time was making a name for himself in Remington Steel. Yeah. Where he kind of plays a, a spy kind of character. But it's funny, I'm not quite sure what happened with Timothy Dalton at this point, but I think Timothy Dalton was busy. Like, the schedules didn't quite meet. Yeah. So he was out of the running anyway at this time. I think he was doing Brand of Star. But, yeah, we get to the point where they're all ready to go with Pierce Brosnan and uh, everyone likes the tests. Yeah. The script's being tailor-made for Pierce Brosnan. Because when they wrote the script, they had to write it middle of the road because they didn't quite know who they were going to get. And everything was set to go. And uh, Remington Steel, at this point, as a TV series, had been cancelled. The only problem was that he was still contracted to NBC that made Remington Steel. They still had the option of renewing it. They had a 60-day option of renewing Remington Steel. And I'm not quite sure what their mindset was because at the end of the day, Remington Steel was a dead thing. It had been cancelled... It had its run. Yeah. I'm not quite sure the thinking behind renewing it was for, like, whether it was to spite him or... I don't understand why they renewed it. Because the story is that on the day of the press release... The the day or two days before they they were going to announce him. And on the very last day, it was like... It was scheduled for at the very end of this option. And Pierce Brosnan had his keys in his hand when his phone rang. And he was due to go out to this press release yeah. and they said that actually it's been renewed just reading it now it seems like an ironic thing it seemed that the buzz around Pierce Brosnan for playing James Bond had caused a surge in interest in the series yeah. and because there was a surge in interest in the series they thought oh we better make some more <laughs> but that automatically brought yeah. him out of the running so they kind of shot themselves in the foot there because he was contracted to do Remington Steel and the thing is they only ended up making like I think four of the TV movie versions of Remington Steel. Yeah. He must have hated doing those as oh, well. I bet. Yeah, five new episodes were filmed before it was finally cancelled. It sounds almost vindictive, doesn't it? Because of the way that it's played out. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I do get what you're saying. That it's actually the interest in Bond that kind of made it go on. There was so much buzz surrounding Pierce Brosnan and so much goodwill surrounding Pierce Brosnan. The rug was pulled under for everybody, yeah. including the public, because everyone was like... Expecting, expecting him to be yeah. James Bond. And it's funny as well, because in the Everything or Nothing documentary, Pierce Brosnan describes it as not really sinking in until he saw the billboards like yeah. six months later or for The Living Daylights, which is a great poster, actually. It the, is. the original poster for Living Daylights is a really nice painting. But now they've lost Pierce Brosnan and they're ready to go and they need a bond. So they go back to Timothy Dalton, who agrees to do it, and they sort some scheduling thing out. I mean, I think he literally finishes Brenda Starr on the Friday and starts Bond on the Monday. Yeah, I imagine that they would actually bend over backwards like that. Yeah. for him to, um, to accommodate him. They couldn't wait any longer, essentially. But yeah, herein lies the problem. 
because you've got an actor who's already publicly stated that he wasn't interested in the role. But I think the main problem is that, yeah, he was always looked at as being the reluctant Bond yeah. and being the second choice. And also the fact that people were sold, the general public was sold on Pierce Brosnan for the longest time. Yeah. And then, it, oh, it's suddenly, no, it's not him, it's this Timothy Dalton guy. I think that just hurt him straight away. Mm-hmm. Whatever he was going to do, he was always going to be looked at as that second choice. Yeah. And that guy that didn't really want it. We jump ahead. I mean, they make The Living Daylights. It's a reasonable success. I mean, I wouldn't describe it as being a home run. No. But it definitely made a lot more money than The View to a Kill. I mean, it made... 191.2 million based in a 40 million budget in 1987. So again, still really good business, but definitely an upsurge from Roger Moore from V2 yeah. Kill, especially the fact that it's a new actor. In America, though, it still only made 1 million more than a View to a Kill, I yeah. think, which is not deemed as being an incredible success, but it's stopping the rot in a way. It's not down, which is exactly what they want. Yeah, I think this is a general feeling that I don't think... The American audience like Timothy Dalton that much. No. I've picked it up on a lot, especially like there's other podcasts like that James Bonding podcast. Yeah. They don't like Timothy Dalton very much. I just don't know why. Yeah. Especially as he's probably one of the most British <laughs> yeah, he of is. all the Bonds. He is. Just in terms of you could clearly see him having a drink down the pub. Yeah. Like yeah he's definitely. that kind yeah. of guy where he's the most appropriate for James Bond because Although he's yeah, he's a good-looking guy. He's the guy that you could see as being able to slip away into the shadows and look, yeah. and look anonymous. It's because he looks like a real person. Yeah, actually, like um, yeah. there's an everyday quality to. He's not a pretty Timothy boy. Dalton. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, he definitely gets more back to that Sean Connery style ruggedness, especially like the chiselled cheeks and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But he looks, he looks more mean. Yeah, because I'd say... He's got a real mean streak. He's probably the meanest of all the Bonds, actually. He is, definitely. Yeah, and the hardest as well. Before taking on the role, he reread every single Ian Fleming James Bond book Mm -hmm. and took a lot of notes and um, did a lot of research and he really wanted to make it James Bond as Ian Fleming saw him, which is, at the time, a huge departure from what had gone before. I mean, when we did our Honor Majesty's podcast, we were saying that we don't really get anything to do with Fleming again properly until Timothy Dalton comes yeah. back. I mean, we have a couple of brief flirtations with it in Fewer Eyes Only, but in terms of the actual character as yeah. written on page, we don't return to it until we get to Timothy Dalton's era. It's a very stark contrast between A View to a Kill and Living Daylights. I mean, you still have a few hangovers on Living Daylights. It's certain set pieces and things they have to do mm-hmm. where you can see that the script wasn't written for Timothy Dalton. There's a couple of like, one-liners and set pieces. Yeah. Like you've got the car. And, oh, yeah. And there's a, couple, there's a couple of humorous dialogue things which don't suit Timothy Dalton in that film, but there's a yeah, big contrast between the two There's a few films. quips in The yeah. Living Daylights where he comes off a little bit too, I'd say, whiny, where they're clearly meant to be kind of like ironic Pierce Brosnan-type quips, yeah. whereas delivered through Timothy Dalton's voice, it, it feels like he's complaining. You yeah. Know, it, it, I think it's more that thing where Dalton doesn't do quips. Yeah. He's better than that. Like He doesn't need them. It's one of those things where they really should have been stronger and just left them out. Yeah, yeah. Very much what they did when they did Casino Royale and they, they left out a lot of the established... I think they almost saw the failings of Dalton being accepted and, and comparing them against people. They saw those failings when they did Daniel Craig and decided to go, right, we're going to have the balls to not do these things. Yeah. 
and make the Bond completely in Daniel Craig's image and not have him try and relate back to anything that Pierce Brosnan did. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to work. And it's a shame that they didn't go all out with Dalton and say, right, we're not doing anything that Roger Moore did. We're going to really tailor-make it to Dalton. And I mean, even in License to Kill, it's more tailor-made for Dalton, but there's still a couple of little things that creep in here and there that shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame that they are there, really, because it made the people that didn't like Dalton go, oh, look, he can't do that. Yeah, it's not that yeah. he can't do it, it's just it's not suitable for him to be actually no, doing no. those things in the role because he's playing something completely different. So it comes out, it does reasonably well, and uh, yeah, they're looking at doing the next James Bond film, and obviously this is the first one that they can actually truly tailor-make it for Dalton's strengths because they've seen what he does good, what he doesn't like doing. Yeah, this is more true to Dalton as yeah. an actor. The first thing they think about is just looking at just the world around them. It's Richard Maybaum. And Michael G. Wilson writing the screenplay again. Uh, and they'd written the screenplays as a partnership ever since Fewer Eyes Only. Yeah. So this is their fifth film collaborating together. They decided to go and ask the question, who is the big Satan in today's society? Mm-hmm. Like, who is the big bad in today's society? And they decided to look into a few things. And they found that one of the main things was these drug lords, these drug barons, who had so much power that they like almost owned their own country that they were in and yeah. were connected. And they created this character of Franz Sanchez and invented his whole organization. And then they thought, how are we going to get this character involved with James Bond? They decided to go back to Fleming and really look at what would make James Bond become involved with this character. And the main thing is um, there's a key sequence in Live and Let Die Felix Leiter is uh, maimed by a, by a, sh- a shark. Great white shark. we get the whole, he disagreed with something that ate him line, which is in the book of Live and Let Die. They took this and yeah, they made it the catalyst for everything. So they decided yeah. that this is actually going to be a revenge film. Like mm-hmm. the very first proper film where Bond has taken revenge. And in that way, it kind of does away with the typical Bond formula. Yes. Because... I think this might be the first time... I mean, we've seen Bond go roguish before, but this is the first time he's actually, like, disobeyed orders and decided that he's going to act outside of the the Secret Service, the British Secret Service. Yeah, so they decided it was going to be a much more personal story, and because it wouldn't mesh with what MI6 wanted to do, that they would take his license to kill away, so his license would be revoked. That was the original yeah. title of the film, which is the see cause some of another problem. online. Oh yeah, the license revoked moniker. Yeah, so it's a very for, um, for the Return of the time, Jedi type situation. Yeah, for the longest time, it was called license revoked, and this is another problem that they had because this is the only James Bond film to date where they've actually had to change the title midway through production. Mm-hmm. And it was only literally directly in the middle. It was like November 88 where they changed the title. Mm. They'd they'd been shooting since July. So they already had posters up at the studios and stuff like that with the license revoked moniker up. They'd already started advertising as license revoked. I mean, what do you think of the title license revoked? It works for the story of the film. I'm not quite sure it's punchy enough. Yeah, I think... Again, like you say, it works in the story of the film, but in isolation, I don't think it actually works. It sounds like Bond's got a DUI too many. Yeah, and when looked at from an outsider perspective, it doesn't really um, lend Bond the kind of edge that it needs. I think License to Kill is definitely the right title. I just think that they should have come across it sooner. Yeah, and when we'll go into it later, this is another thing that hurt the marketing campaign that they changed the title so late in the day. But yeah, they went on with this idea and they decided to take away any sort of MI6 involvement, which immediately 
changes the formula. Yeah. It's interesting as well. This is a script that's tailor-made for Dalton, but Dalton himself didn't have any involvement in the development. It's very different to how it is mm-hmm. now where we get Daniel Craig being involved very heavily in yeah. the pre-production of the film. I mean, uh, uh, he's I'm, the I'm first actor. Crew is hired and... Yeah, he's the first actor to really do that. And I imagine they'll go along that route from then on yeah. now anyway. It looks good as well to, it to does, be able yeah. to say that in the press as well, that this is literally a Bond that has been tailor-made for a particular actor. I really liked the screenplay for Lights to Kill. I mean, that's I think the thing that I really liked about it, especially in contrast to a lot of the um, films that have come before it, especially a lot of the Roger Moore films, it has a proper story. Yeah, it does. Like, yeah. it's a really solid story. It's not just a collection of set pieces that are flimsily strung together. And they've tried to make a film out of exactly, it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Which, to be honest, this film could have ended up going that way because there were early talks about it actually taking place in China and they wanted to incorporate the Great Wall of China and the Terracotta Army and they had these action sequences mapped out but didn't actually have a story. All they knew is that it wanted to involve drugs somehow. And um, then The Last Emperor came out and all of the novelty of actually shooting in China was taken away. So they moved it to, um, well, South America. I think this is also the first film as well where they take massive inspiration from other works. So the main plot of License to Kill, which is the central idea that Bond befriends the bad guy and sows seeds of distrust within his organization and basically turns the villain on his own people and basically destroys his organization from the inside out. Mm -hmm. That central conceit was inspired from a couple of sources, most directly the the Kurosawa film. um, Is it Yojimbo? Oh, Yojimbo, yeah. I, and, I think it's Yojimbo. Yeah, I've always is, referred to it as Yojimbo. Which is also actually based... The actual film Yojimbo is actually based on a film noir called The Glass Key, mm-hmm. which is based on a novel by Dashiell Hammett. Yeah. But it's... Uh, so talking about nothing being original. Yeah, <laughs> but it's an idea that's been remade quite a few times, yeah. uh, most notably in uh, A Fistful of Dollars yep. and uh, Last Man Standing. Of course, which, yeah. But that central conceit, it's uh, a really good idea. Mm-hmm. They used it for this film and it works really well and in fact it's one of those things where it actually worked even better once they got into actually making the film because of the kind of people that they cast in these roles brought a lot more to it in fact the key line for the villain loyalty is more important to me than money is not in the script it's actually improvised by robert darvey he actually brought that oh it's the brilliant that, that and sums it's the up key. that character it's perfectly. the key to the yeah. whole thing that loyalty is more important to me than money and uh, it really, especially in the last sort of 20 minutes, really comes home that that's definitely, it's him straight down the middle. It and, is, yeah. And um, it undoes everything that he's built up. Yeah. By the end, he doesn't care because people have been disloyal to him. Or at least he thinks people have been disloyal yeah. to him. One of the things that I do want to mention while we're on this subject is in talking about one of Timothy Dalton's version of Bond, what one of his greatest strengths is, is that, yeah, he does look like a bit of a bruiser. He does look like he's something of a boxer and he can handle himself. But he's not just an instrument of blunt force, but he's also smart and able to play people against himself. It's like he recognises that this particular trait in this character, that loyalty is more important to him than money. Mm. And he works that against him from really quite early on in the script yeah in the film and that's what i like about this bond is that he's not just there to 
hit people and say things. I think this is, for me, again, one of the best Bond films because of that reason, because it's the first film for a, a long time where Bond is very, very smart in this film. Yeah. And uh, plays a lot of people off each other. It's very meticulous and nothing comes by chance no, in this film. Everything's orchestrated everything's, by him in particular. Yeah. But it's it, but it, at the same time, it's it's hard work. Yeah. Um, he has to work for it. It's actually um, a lot of the tension in the film is yeah. built up about that because you just don't know if it's going to pay off. Like, you just don't know if he's going to get away with it. Yeah. And, and how say, long he can get away and, with it And for. there's only a few other Bond films where they really achieve that. Mm. But I said this is still one of the best ones for that, where Bond is... You can genuinely believe that he would be a, a plausible spy that would be on the rampage. Yeah. You don't get that feeling with many of the Bond films. It definitely, no, because, definitely feels more like a fantasy situation where he doesn't do a lot of spying. Yeah, anytime Bond like Batman sits at a table much. with a, the villain yeah. in any other Bond film, everybody knows where they stand. Yeah, And it's like, the villain knows that that's his nemesis, and Bond knows that that's the bad guy. And there are very few times in the, in the Bond series in which they are sat across from each other and one person is playing the other. Yeah. And we, we get that in Casino Royale a little bit where they are actually playing with each other, but they both know who they are and where they stand, both Bond and um, Le Chief. Mm. But in this film, it's um, Bond is drip-feeding him information and some of it's the truth and some of it's a lie. And Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very unusual situation. literally playing him. It's a very unusual situation because this is the first and probably only time where the hero and the villain seemingly become friends. Yeah. And Bond is using his friendship with this villain to sow the seeds of distrust. Yeah, and it's and it's how he uses things that have happened and reframes them to sow those seeds yeah. of distrust. It's really entertaining to watch. And I don't even think since that Bond's really got no, back to I, that No, I'd as say well. this is Bond at his cleverest. Yeah, definitely. Really, because there's no other Bond film I can say that he really goes this far and they really make him as proactive as he is yeah. in this film. And he's very bullheaded yeah. in his mission, like, fuck everyone else. And he tells people to leave several times. Yeah. And uh, he doesn't really care if he messes anybody else's operations up. He wants this man. And the important thing to note as well, and the important thing to say that this is why it works, and you just mentioned it before, is that it's hard work. None of it comes easy to mm. him. This thinking on his feet is hard work, and he could be caught out at any moment. And we have seen Bond do things too easy from the films that follow like he, in this film you get a feeling that he is nervous and he is breaking a bit of a sweat mm. and we've seen bond since where nothing phases him yeah and and, and we and I, they're I the think, least engaging yeah exactly we prefer a bond that really works his hardest and really um well he's really he's, on the edge yeah he's on the edge of vulnerability yeah you know that's the kind of bond that we like mm. we were mentioning it just before we started pierce brosnan and bond suffers massively because of that i think it's almost a reaction to yeah, this film and we were talking about the film that we mentioned in the last bong podcast that was our least favorite the world is not enough actually does have one really good scene which is the the scene where bond is in the chair which is about to break his neck yeah and it's the only really engaging scene in the whole film because it's the only scene where you know that bond doesn't know what to do and he's, he's run out of options. Yeah, and it's only by chance that he actually gets out of the situation. It's only because another character saves him mm. at the cost of his life yeah. that Bond is able to escape this contraption. Up until that point, he literally thinks, there's no way out of this. Mm. I am about to die. He is 
completely helpless in that moment. Mm. And it, I think that's the only point, and in fact, in Pierce Brosnan's only run where he is out of it, truly out of his depth and yeah. truly in a situation in which his life is being threatened and him as a character knows it. Yeah, it's a real shame that there seems to be um, the belief that Bond can't be like that. Yeah. And yet and people go, oh, that's the classic Bond. And yet when we see it, it's, it's the least interesting. Mm-hmm. Bond doesn't fare well against chairs, does he, really? Because no. <laughs> look at Casino Royale as well. <laughs> no, he doesn't, he, he doesn't do well sat down. Yeah, no, <laughs> certainly not anymore, anyway. No. <laughs> not after Casino Royale. There's so much tension because you, you just think, fuck, he's going to get found out or he's going to get caught out. I mean, there's even bits like in the middle of the film when he's... Um, underneath Sanchez's office window when he's laying the, the toothpaste yeah. underneath the window, you're just like, fuck, they could see him at any point. Yeah, and they and play on that. Oh, they they play on it so well with the pigeons like yeah. floating past the window. And that's John Glenn's thing. I mean, if you noticed in all of John Glenn's Bond films, he has the pigeons. Yeah. There's so much tension to be mined out of the situation because you've got him being found out by the villains, but then you've also got his own people who are trying to shut him down as well. Mm-hmm. Like there's several occasions where people are telling him to stop and are hindering him or other operations that are hindering him yeah. that he doesn't care about, but he's actually hindering their operations. And it's like, it just feels much more real because there's actually consequences. Mm-hmm. And it's just so much more interesting for it because you just feel like he's one cog in a wider world. Yeah. You never really get that with Bond, especially in the Roger Moore and Sean Connery films. It does feel like a much smaller world. It does. Uh, and he's much more in control of the situation. And whereas it, with these films, this film especially, you do feel like he's just one operative and there's all this other stuff going on. Yeah, he's him. actually stepping on people's toes. And whereas, he is a loose cannon, which yeah. he is actually described as in the film. Yeah, I think that's right. There are consequences to the things that he is doing. And they're not good consequences. It's no. like uh, he's literally getting in the way. In fact, Perhaps if he wouldn't have tried to assassinate Sanchez, Hong Kong narcotics might have been able to go through with the. Whole they might have got him anyway and got him. Yeah, yeah. and also they would, might have got the stingers back. Yeah, as well, exactly. Which, yeah, yeah. That, so there's two main things that he that think, he uh, saw, messes up. I saw in an interview on the special features on the Blu-ray mm. in which John Glenn says that his version of Bond in this film, he wanted to paint a picture of him as being sometimes perhaps just as bad as the bad guys but in different ways yeah and um, maybe he's not even aware of it and that definitely comes across and again going back to the bond of the novels like bond is he's not a nice person no he sort of does justice by people but he uh, sometimes doesn't always go about it in yeah. the right way and, and also makes cost? certain certain decisions yeah. So I think uh, we've already branched into actually discussing the film and I don't think we have to really give a brief summary about what we actually feel because it's quite no. obvious that we really like License to Kill. So, um, I mean, yeah, we are in, in the midst of actually discussing Bond as a character. So let's talk about the other characters in the film and where it succeeds and where it doesn't. I mean, let's uh, actually start to break down this film. Let's start on a, another plus. Let's talk more about Sanchez, the villain, yeah. and, and how and why that works. And the casting of Robert Darby as well. For me, I think Robert Darby as Franz Sanchez is hands down one of my top five Bond villains of all time. Yeah, I'd agree he has with to that. Be, I think Silver's another one that's mm-hmm. top one for me, but I think he may possibly even be my favorite Yeah, out of all of them. The thing is I like about Sanchez's, which I spoke about earlier, is that his plan is relatively small 
I mean, it's, it involves millions of dollars and a lot of cocaine. Yeah. But um, his plan is not to take over the world. It's not to build a base in a volcano and yeah. steal spaceships out of the sky. His plan is to literally get cocaine across the world and to sell cocaine. That's his empire. That's the way in which he wants to conquer the world in a way. Yeah. And it's and, just through drugs. Yeah. And in the events of this film, he's looking at expanding that yeah. to the Far East. And number one, that feels smaller for a Bond villain. It feels number two more real and yeah i do genuinely really like that and the other thing is a silver as well that is that again he is smaller as a villain his goal is much more real and relatable in skyfall he what he wants to do is essentially punish his mother yeah and he's essentially a told off child i think that's why these type of villains really succeed is that they're a lot more relatable as characters to the real world in some way or another they still might be flamboyant like silver but they do feel more real yeah and i think it's because of that that the stakes are more personal because like Silver's story is a personal story i mean yeah i won't even go into specs and how they ruin that but it's a personal story and it's even more personal, I think, even with Sanchez's character, because it's about his organization. Yeah. And it's about the people around him that he trusts. Yeah. And again, like, it's about Bond turning that over. Yeah. In the end, he has no one else left. Yeah. He's literally killed or I... got rid of everyone else that was around him. I mean, that, that leads us back to Bond again, because I love how essentially cruel Bond is in this film. Because yeah. straight from the off, we do get the idea that these are bad people willing to do bad things. And um, they go to an extreme by having Felix's leg chewed off by a shark and having his wife killed, yeah. um, shot. So we know from the off that these are bad people and Bond can do whatever the fuck to them. And we as an audience are on his side. Mm. But they do toe that line at times in terms of the cruelty that Bond deals to them and the way oh, yeah. in which he does. I mean, there's one really spectacular head explosion that he kind of, in a way, orchestrates. It's funny as well because you have that sort of an eye for an eye, but I think Bond's had a couple of more eyes. Yeah, he definitely there, has. Yeah. He really uh, sticks it into them sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I do like that this Bond is much harder to like. In a way. I mean, um, I do like him, but he's a, <laughs> he's a lot harder as a character. I think that's going back to the American thing again. Um, certain audiences, like the American audience is one, and there are definitely other audiences that like that as well, but they like they like to like their heroes yes. a lot. And having Dalton play this character in this way, where he's much more three-dimensional and has a lot more layers, but you don't necessarily like him. No, he's such a grey area in terms of um, it, like morally. On a commercial front, it's an undoing of the series because although it's much, I feel it's much better mm-hmm. uh, and it's more interesting and more dramatic, it's something that the general audience sometimes can't always get over. Yeah. So it's almost like its greatest strengths, in a way, have been its greatest weaknesses oh, financially. It makes me sad that people mm-hmm. use this film as an example, like, oh, this is where Bond got too dark. Oh, this is where we shouldn't go anymore. Yeah. And, like, and I'm like, no, this is where it... you had something. You must feel for <laughs> Timothy Dalton, who must now be sat there looking over at Casino Royale and Skyfall yeah. and thinking, dear God, those are the films that I wanted oh, the, to at make. At the same time now, especially when um, you can see how Pierce Brosnan films have kind of slipped away into the background, because only GoldenEyes are now well regarded, and the fact that his films have grown in popularity, and the fact that Daniel Craig's films are so popular, especially the first three in terms of, like, critically, mm-hmm. that he now, um, like, feels vindicated. Yeah. He felt like 
I did do a good job. Yeah. And people are now beginning to realise that. Well, I mean, taking that on board as well, Timothy Dalton's actually had something of a resurgence in his career oh, recently. Yeah, definitely. Both being used by Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg in the uh, middle Cornetto film, the, uh, Hot Fuzz. Yeah. But also, he is currently enjoying a decent run in Penny Dreadful, yeah. which is a very popular TV series at yeah. the moment, which um, I have yet to get into, but I do own it on Blu-ray. Yeah. But it, he is definitely having... It's a second wind in his career, really. Yeah. And maybe that's in part people coming back round to License to Kill, coming back round to the idea of Timothy Dalton as Bond. Maybe that's why. Yeah, and, and you could see it in the uh, in the, the Everything or Nothing documentary as well, because I've never really seen him talk about his time as Bond before, like especially in retrospect. It really seemed that despite, obviously, his reputation for being obviously very shy at the time, he seemed so passionate mm. about what he wanted to do with the role. And apparently, even from, like, um, you hear people like Jerry Jarreau, who was, like, uh, Eon's head of publicity and things him talking about being on set and seeing him play the role you could really feel the vibes coming off him going oh shit this is james bond yeah and yeah jerry drew always questioned why that never translated to audience feedback at the time mm. it was really strange and again that whole idea of maybe this is a story that a lot of people didn't want to see or hear of because mm-hmm. it's a real thing and it deals with real issues and sometimes people don't want to know about these they rather have fantasy yeah. and not look at these real world situations. And again, Sanchez is such a brilliant villain, but he's probably the most realistic Bond villain we've ever had. And, and, yeah. and, and, and continue since, to. really. Yeah. yeah. And that's what makes him work. But that's, I think, why people don't relate to him as a Bond villain. As such, yeah. In terms of, I hate when people go, oh, who's the new Bond girl and who's the new Bond villain? Like, well, it's that's, some sort of generic thing. That again, I can't believe how on point you are because, like I say, I do have a review from Empire that really does touch upon that exact subject. I mean, almost like um, I could quote it exactly, yeah. but that's, that's part of the reason that the villain wasn't flamboyant enough, that he w- wasn't trying to take over the world and... Uh, and and that's that's part of the reason why Bond had got itself into the rut it had was because it was always trying to kind of top itself in terms of stakes. It's almost like uh, we were talking about with um, Damon Lindelof on um, Tomorrowland and before about how he says that Hollywood films are always trying to come up with the next thing, the next big stake. And sometimes it benefits from films going smaller and License to Kill is a film that definitely benefits from Bond going to playing it on a like a smaller world but on altogether more real world as a result yeah but then again for me it feels bigger yeah everything's much bigger the stakes are much bigger well that's it because the stakes are more personal Mm. that's why it feels bigger it's because it's it's garnering a stronger emotion from us because it's only so big you can make something before it no longer has any kind of like well personal properties to it you know there's no longer that connection it untethers itself yeah Okay, so we've really gushed about License to Kill for a short while now. and um, it's My pants are quite <laughs> wet. <laughs> Moist <laughs> is the word. Um, I think we need to really balance this out by talking about some of the film's flaws and maybe a couple of holdovers from the yeah, Roger yeah. Moore era of Bond. Because at the end of the day, this is only really one film removed from Roger Moore era. Yeah. And I think the place in which this film fails or falters in some regard is when it's dealing of the Bond girls. Because on the special features on the Blu-ray, Timothy Dalton does talk about how he strived to make the Bond girls far less decorative as they had be- been before. 
and incorporate them in some more meaningful way. And there are a couple of moments where that works, and you do get a sense that there is something more to these characters. I really like the introduction of Pam Bouvier, who, um, when she's introduced, she's got a shotgun between her legs in the middle of this like kind of rowdy bar, and she's ready to kick off at any moment's mm. notice. Uh, unfortunately, after that, she just turns into another Bond girl. Yeah, but, um, it's only really towards the end in the tank chase yeah, sequence she that she back becomes into, back into it yeah but yeah the the whole middle part of the film exactly i think it actually the middle part of the film fails those characters mm. because they don't really add anything for a grand portion and it's almost in some regard i wish that they would have um probably toned them back a bit or at least done something more with them because you were telling me earlier actually the um the character of sanchez's uh, girlfriend or wife uh, what's her name again lupe lupe yeah um she actually was intended to be more of a prominent character yeah she was meant to be more proactive i know talisa sato describes her she wanted to make her more of a of a schema yeah like there's there's very definitely aspects of that in the character still like the way she's able to manipulate people yeah. and the start of the film, she's caught out in some of the extracurricular that she's trying to do in the back of her mind. She wanted to be a character that was scheming and trying to almost like take over power of the men around her mm-hmm. and like gain more control within the organization itself. Yeah. And yeah, that doesn't really come through in the final version of the film. No, she does help bond at a couple of intervals a couple of moments she's not really given reason to really help him other than her hate of sanchez really mm. she although in fact she did do one thing which i thought was quite good actually in fact that again i think is a bit undermined by some of the choices that the producers made that she actually decided to lisa soda decided in preparation for the role to not watch any bond films so she didn't want to get a handle on what yeah. previous bond women like what like. was expected of her yeah in a traditional yeah. sense when I first watched it, I thought, oh, she's a bit wooden. She's not like the best ever. But I'm not sure it's like just she's not served by the material. Because it sounds like she's done a hell of a lot of research. And yeah. in her mind, there's a much better character yeah. there. I'm still of the opinion that it's a quite wooden performance. But it's, I mean, the more you talk about it, the more I think that actually it's um, there are good intentions there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, It's a shame because the film takes many risks in other departments, but still feels part of that old bond world when it approaches uh, women really mm. essentially i mean that's the thing as well it's because um pam bouvier especially like you say she's introduced so strong but moments later she's still like sharing a a cheeky snog with bond despite yeah having just being shot in the back yeah <laughs> i was reading even in the book which is the some kind of hero book that came out recently yeah there's a bit in there which describes the like she was a bit weirded out by doing that sequence because she was like hey i've just been shot in the back should i really be doing this yeah. <laughs> which it was a perfectly valid argument because it is really something that's been shoehorned yeah. in there because it's something that oh it's a bond film so we need to have this happen mm-hmm. it's very much that kind of thing and that i think they should have um stuck to the guns a little bit more and just yeah. got rid of all those elements i mean there are a couple of things where they um they play into that, don't they? When they're like, oh, we're south of the border. It's a man's world. Yeah. I think there's still very much a slightly more oldie-worldie view of, of women still. Yeah. And I think that's just mainly down to the people involved at the time. At the same time, at least towards the end of the film, um, she does actually come to Bond's rescue. Bond is the damsel in distress for a yep. moment at the end of the film, and she is the one that rushes to his rescue and saves him. And that's really quite progressive for a Bond film. Yeah, she totally uh, whips Benicio Del Toro's ass. Yeah, in that. who is fantastic in this oh. film, in the very short time that he's in it, but he's great. Oh, 
Benicio Del Toro in this film is amazing. He yeah. really is fucking evil. He, he is. He does, he does it so well. Yeah. There's a really um, strong set of actors in the roles of villains anyway in this film. I mean, yeah. pretty much everyone in this film that plays a villain is great. Yeah. I mean, even Wayne Newton as mm-hmm. Joe Butcher is fantastic. Yeah, it is. And I think the great thing they did is when they were casting these villains, they weren't swayed by having to cast well-known people. No. They were just casting people that were right for those well, roles. Like Robert Darfy was cast because um, I think uh, Barbara Broccoli had seen him in a play, or one of the producers had seen him in a play and went, okay, yeah, let's, let's cast yeah, him. Yeah, um, there were lots of things where they really wanted him, but they had to sort of yeah. cast around before they said, right, yeah, you're him, because they had to just for the studio's sake yeah. look at these bigger names. You hear that often, don't you? Yeah. That They've always said, this was my first choice, but we had to play the game in order yeah. to get him. But you've got all these actors, even like uh, Anthony Stark, who plays the Truman Lodge character, is yeah. perfect for that kind of weedly Wall Street mm. executive oh, he's, he's fiddling fantastic the numbers. In this, yeah. I call him not Emilio Estevez. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I love his meltdown at the end yeah. of the film, like because... When he starts answering back about like oh, fifty minutes really, from the like, end, you just you, you know like, you know gonna, he's gonna he's gonna <laughs> die. It's just how far is he gonna take it before he finally gets shot? Yeah, obviously Anthony Zerbo is Milton Crest as well. It's yeah, like you got Ed Ed um got Everett McGill. Ed, sorry, Everett Killifer. McGill. Yeah, Everett McGill from Twin yeah. Peaks and uh, People Under the Stairs. Yeah, but he's great in this. Again, it's such a great character actor. Used for a short time. Mm. Used the right amount, I would say. I say like on a villain's front, yeah, that everything's is really solid. But yeah, like on a Bond woman's front, then yeah, it's not quite as solid. I mean, they're definitely making strides. Yeah, they are. They still haven't got a handle on it. It's like they still don't quite know how to implement this in a more progressive way, in a more way that's beneficial to the story. I can probably only say that they've really successfully done that and only a couple of occasions anywhere. I mean, yes, even yeah. The only two I can really say of note are probably Casino Royale, Skyfall, and that's only because there's not that many traditional Bond women in it, and to a lesser extent, Quantum of Solace. Or maybe Tomorrow Never Dies for a part of it but this is an area that bond traditionally is not comfortable with and it doesn't really do it that well i mean yeah yeah it's not a i mean it's not a pro-feminist uh no it it never has been and neither is the uh, material on which it's based and i think there's an argument to be made that you know what to be true to the source material perhaps that isn't something that people should be coming in saying oh we're going to make a feminist film out of bond or anything like that and to be honest i think um the only way you could really approach this and make it more of a strong film for women and a feminist film in a way. It's to just treat the women as fully rounded characters. Mm. And again, you're right. It's only something that they've recently got into the head of. Like, this is how we can do this. When you yeah. look at characters like Vesper Lind. Yeah, and they still and fail because, like I said, the Madeline Swan character inspectors are complete non starter. Exactly, yeah. And they're still capable of falling into the same yeah. traps. And it's not about female characters being damsel in distresses. It's it's okay to put them into positions where they need to be saved as long as they are fully rounded characters. Mm. You know, flaws and all. Yeah. Uh, treated in the same kind of with the same kind of importance as the other characters around them. And I think that's this film, it's like they don't quite know how to deal with those characters. Mm. And yeah, you, you are right. It's something that it's still falsehood with. But I, I do think there's an argument to be made that, you know, this at the end of the day is Ian Fleming's Bond and he was kind of a sexist. Yeah. And that's always going to be reflected in the work, always. But um, they definitely are trying more. 
Yeah. This is definitely more of a high watermark it is. for Bond women. It, it definitely is. <laughs> yeah. Well, because in the, series. in the next film, we go back to characters called Xena on a top. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, we go back down that road. Although I'd say she's that pretty, Mac, she's uh, fairly yeah, proactive. Famke Janssen is uh, quite excellent. In I mean, I, I think in that respect, they're probably always stronger with the Bond women. Yeah. In the terms of the villain roles. Yeah. And they are with the heroine type characters. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, they're mainly there to be bedded by Bond. Yeah. So um, as we've just been talking about the actors and the performances and the, and everyone's kind of roles, good and bad in the film. I mean, yeah. are there any other performances that you want to um, notify as such in the film? Because I say for me, this is a film that has a, yeah. a wealth of great performances. Yeah. You know what? I think there's one that I've actually um, overlooked and saw this moment that I, I, we do have to talk about. And that is Desmond Llewellyn as Q. Mm-hmm. I think this is is prior to Daniel Craig's Bond, this is the film that uses Q the best. Yes. And gives him something to do in the story. And it's not just... He doesn't just turn up to be a diversion for a bit. No. And be like, here, here you are, Bond. Here are your new gadgets for this week's, you know, foray into adventure. It's more so he is involved in the story. Yeah. And it almost feels like in this film, it's more of a farewell to him in some way than it is in Pierce Brosnan's Bond. It almost gives him the best send-off. And I almost wish yeah. this was where they did away with that character for a while, almost. Because yeah, I yeah. think he became more of a joke in Pierce Brosnan's films. Yeah, th- this is the last time we see Desmond Wellen's Q in a more active role that's not just there to go, oh, here we got Desmond yeah. Wellen sort of thing. It's, it's not just ticking up, like, it became a box ticking yeah. exercise. And it's really nice, because obviously some people would say, oh, he, he does maybe seem a little bit out of place in the film, but he's probably like, um, he's probably some welcome light relief. Yeah. In the film, and I think um, he actually offers Bond, especially Timothy Dalton's Bond, something that he doesn't offer any of the other Bonds, is that he offers Bond some sort of moral compass Yeah. in the film. Like, he's constantly telling him to, to leave, but he's obviously, he, he does have some sort of role in grounding yeah. him and, and giving Bond some perspective at times. I'd say the only point on which they take that character too far is when he is wearing his big Mexican moustache. Yeah. <laughs> I think that <laughs> sweeping up I, the street I like with his that. radio control yeah. sweeping brush. I can let that pass because it's such a little moment yeah. in the film. I anyway. think it's just the dress. It's just the moustache. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I, I don't. It's like I think it's tonally jarring against the film, but yeah, <laughs> I I can see where you come from. It's like I, I do really like it because it's, it's him. You can't not have a Bond film with a little bit of casual racism. <laughs> 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 it's gotta be in there, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely more of a Roger Moore yeah era hangover there. I do like that. Him and Bond seem to have more of a relationship beyond him just being the supplier of his weaponry. Yeah, it's more so like, um, like you say, he's a moral compass. He's he, he feels like family. Yeah. to Bond in this film. Mm. I think when we're talking about the MI6 cast, because at this point the MI6 cast is very small. It's not like it is now where we've got quite a uh, a lot of roles that have big parts to play. Yeah. in the films, where I actually think this is the best portrayal of M by Robert Brown mm-hmm. as well. Like the the very brief appearances that he does yeah. have in the film, I feel like that's his most effective performance because he's Robert Brown's like the forgotten M. Yes. Got yeah. Bernard Lee. Bernard Lee, yeah. But he was in it for like 12, 13 films. No, he was in it for 11 films. Sorry. Yeah. So he has a massive impact because obviously he was there for the first 20 years. Mm-hmm. 
And then you've got Judy Dench as M, who was in for seven films and tenure-wise was probably the longest serving. Mm-hmm. And she's obviously much more involved in the plots of yeah. those films as well. But then you've got Robert Brown in the middle uh, and he only did four films, two Roger Moore films, two Timothy Dalton films, very much reduced role, very much like a, a pale carbon copy. Yeah, he didn't have his own identity of, as a character. Bernard Lee, really. Yeah. But I feel that like in this film, they kind of make a clearer statement of who this character is. It's a much harder, yeah, more serious version of that character. Yeah. Uh, and the whole location where he is as well, when they, they have the whole Hemingway house sequence. Yeah. That's really nice. It feels less like a um, disapproving father figure like M does in the other Bond films. In this film, he's much harder. And there's even a moment where it's like he would allow Bond to be killed in front yeah. of him. I mean, he does. He, well, I say it's a much more realistic portrayal. Yeah. It's much more of him doing his job. It's like, if you try to escape right now, you will die. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And he just... Yeah. And the only reason he doesn't shoot him because there's too many people around. Exactly, yeah. Place. Yeah, I think that made a really strong statement. And yeah, it's a shame they um, they didn't take that further and that was his last hurrah in the role. Because yeah, I did like that aspect of the, the film that, yeah, this is a very, very harsh working environment yeah. for everybody. Because we were talking about, obviously, little... Uh, hangovers we were talking about the ending yeah of the film which um is a slight letdown because it is completely at odds with everything else that's going on it is Utterly very much so, a hangover yeah. from the roger moore era and we have this little party in the arabesque in sort of sanchez's villa yeah and um it's yeah, a bit goofball-esque get, as yeah well. and you get all these things that, like relationships tying themselves up and yeah. everyone's happy and even felix light is a bit too happy and, yeah and exactly his, in his hospital bed yeah felix lighter who has had his <laughs> wife murdered on the first yeah. night of their honeymoon or the first night of their wedding in fact yeah. wasn't it and and i'll be waiting for you yeah he's laying <laughs> in his bed all smiles like yeah. watching the nurse walk about his room yeah it's like they did that scene first and then didn't tell him what actually was going <laughs> to yeah. happen to him in the rest of the film. Yeah. It's like, that was his test reel. And then they have the whole, like, almost like follow-up to the other out-of-place boat-kissing sequence yeah. at the end, you know, the wait until you asked and all that yeah. bollocks. And it's just a really odd way to end the film. And like I was saying before, if it had been made a little bit later or they'd stuck to the guns a little bit more and gone really all out on it, I feel that they should have ended the film probably a little bit more like Quantum of Solace, really, where... It would have ended where the the tanker blew up and he's running away and he's going away and then Pam comes in with the truck or just comes into shot and it basically just ends with those two walking away yeah into the distance yeah uh, roll credits. having done what they needed yeah. to do and then that's it see I I would have much preferred if it ended that way very much a dirty Harry ending yeah exactly and you don't know if MI six would take him back if there is a way back yeah. for Bond you know there is because there's always going to be another Bond film yeah. but you know that relationships have been severed here. Mm. Uh, they're the real casualty here and um, is Bond going to be as trusted in the next film or anything like that are there going to be any ramifications and instead it just kind of brushes over all of that in the next scene in its effort to try and tie everything off very neatly yeah if this had been a Daniel Craig film they would have definitely Definitely. gone down that route because it would have tied into another film and that's what they like doing now so yeah but at the same time you have to view it in the context and it's only the more apparent when you watch these films in sequence how dramatic a change they made yeah when you're watching it going from octopus v to a kill living daylight slices to kill and it's like the change is massive and to be honest that is the exact reason that this film kind of failed yeah it's because it didn't have more moments like this one 
Yeah. It, that it wasn't that kind of... it. I mean, this film ends with a winking fish winking <laughs> at the audience. And that's the thing that people seem to... Or at least some critics and some people, specifically American audiences, really missed from these films. Mm. Is that winking... That, that kind of... Yeah, winking at the audience-ness mm. of the other films. It's almost like they, they had to put the winking eye in by obligation just to <laughs> yeah. satisfy those yeah. fans. It's, it's so, so although we are sat here with the benefit of hindsight saying that stuff should never have been in the film, for many people, that they were the strongest moments. I can see already. I mean, you're going to get people even commenting on Facebook and, and people just say all the time, oh, I hated it when they did all that, when they did all yeah. that realistic James Bond stuff. Yeah, yeah. I get back to all the you know the flying cars and all that kind of yeah. volcano layers and things like that, and it's like I like that, but it's, this is more interesting. It's in and of its era, yeah. And it's it's something that Bond's already done, and I think Bond as a series should always be looking forward and always be looking mm. at how it can complement the world in which we live in. And I think to look back so obviously, and Spectre did just a little bit yeah. too much. And I'm well. saying like like Golden Eye is a step back. Spectre is definitely a step back. Yeah. It doesn't break any new ground. Yeah, with, it's like a half baked greatest hits package. Well, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say that I can think of the last two films that actually really challenged audiences with Bond were Casino Royale and um, Skyfall. I think that's why. <laughs> With the Everything or Nothing documentary, I kind of feel like it's probably why Timothy Dalton himself is so happy. I mean, I imagine he would have very much liked watching Casino and Skyfall and he probably would have really enjoyed them and going, oh, this is, this is something I can relate to. Think This is what I was pushing for. Yeah. And the fact that Skyfall did so well, it's like, yeah, I've been vindicated. The pennies finally dropped for people. Yeah. That's why I feel it's so odd that they've followed up with a film that's so safe. Yeah. And... Uh, has nothing to say. No, and it's so far removed from the yeah. real world. I mean, uh, talking about that as well, how, just how far removed it is, um, just to branch into... This would be a good point to actually start talking about the filmmaking as well, yeah, yeah. License to Kill, and start connecting them. But the last film we watched, uh, you had a point to make about just how there are no personal stakes earlier and about yeah. e- even in the action sequences. Yeah. And uh, I'd just like to elaborate on that a yeah, little bit Yeah, because we, we're talking about explosions, actually. And uh, within License to Kill and Spectre, there are two very large explosions. But in fact, it's the explosion that's the smaller explosion that is the most effective. Yeah. Yeah, we were just comparing and contrasting because the sequence at the end of License to Kill, when there's only Bond and the villain left, and they're all beaten up and bruised and bloody, and it's just last last men standing. And it looks as if Sanchez has got the upper hand. Mm Mm-hmm. The line you could have had everything is like, don't yeah. you want to know why? It's like he's, and he shows him the the lighter that he got from Felix, from Felix. and then it sets yeah. him ablaze. And it's the the sequence when he's running away from the explosion, and obviously it's all done in one shot. And mm-hmm. Dalton is clearly in frame, actually there. John Richardson, who's the special effects guy who set up the explosion for the film, he was commenting on how well Timothy Dalton was reacting to the explosion mm-hmm. probably because he was actually in shot and he was actually reacting for real with the explosion but also the fact that obviously the explosion goes off in stages as all good explosions do mm-hmm. and you never every blow sing- your load straight yeah. away and every single bit he was 
speeding up and and reacting to it more and trying to get the fuck out of there. Yeah. All the while being worse for wear, so you can tell he's stumbling and trying yeah, to get as far away. But you know, scrambling away from. But it. you know that he's not a hundred percent. So he's like, is he going to get away in time? Sort of thing. Contrasting that with Spectre, where we have a Guinness World Records explosion which is a huge explosion, very well executed in and of itself, but it's totally undermined by the performances of the two actors in front of the explosion. So they try and repeat... And even just the staging yeah, of it, I would say. and they say try and well. repeat the trick, but the composition's off. It's far too flat mm-hmm. uh, in terms of its composition. And um, yeah, just the reactions of the two characters watching the explosion. And you, you said that before, in License to Kill... The uh, character is participating in the action. Yeah. Whereas in Spectre, in that particular sequence, the characters are observing the action. Yeah. And it's a very different thing, and uh, well, very different results come from it. I mean, it is one far of them more is, successful. One of them, so like, it doesn't matter how big your explosion is if your character is just an observer of it. Because it comes across as lazy. And yeah. the thing is, when audiences go to the cinema, they want, well, more often than not, see the film through the protagonist's eyes. Mm. And by throwing us into Bond, who is a participant in the action, in License to Kill, we feel that explosion more because we are there with Bond. Whereas if we are with Bond and Spectre, we're just watching it with him. There's nothing more to it. There's nothing more that we can feel other than, wow, that's a big explosion. Mm. We're not in and amongst it. That explosion is being used for nothing other than just basic spectacle as mm. in we are, it's a firework that's it yeah. it's an ooh and a ah whereas there are ways that you could have threw those characters in amongst that whole thing and made us feel more made us feel excitement danger fear a whole manner of emotions just from an explosion and they opt to just cut all of that out yeah. and just have us watch it in the most basic way possible from a distance yeah. from a safe distance i think there's another aspect to that as well that we can definitely compare the two films against because when we were watching specter i noted the fact that bond doesn't bleed at all no in the film there's no he doesn't get any cuts and bruises or anything like that whereas it's funny to to think that when Timothy Dalton did License to Kill, that was the very first time we'd ever seen James Bond actually properly bleed. I mean, I think mm. Roger Moore had like one cut here and there, yeah. but the first time we'd seen him battered and bruised that much that he looked vulnerable. Yeah. He, like the first time we really saw him broken yeah. and him stumbling away like that, that really heightened yeah. that scene. Whereas, yeah, Inspector, he doesn't bleed at all and he doesn't seem bothered by anything and there's so there's so much disconnect there yeah well i did read as well that one of the reasons he is reacting the way he is is because it turned out that they were actually too close to the explosion as well including the crew (laughs) and they said they were all stood there wearing shorts and t-shirts and um timothy dalton scrambling across the floor away from this explosion and he looked up and all of the crew were either walking back or turning away from it (laughs) And he was realized then, oh no, I could be in a bit of a serious danger yeah. here. Obviously he wasn't because the research had been done, the work had been done. But he said afterwards when everybody was like checking themselves to see if they were all right, the, um, the hairs on their body had been singed yeah. by the fire. They'd been burnt <laughs> away. And, uh, yeah. It's like, that, that's great. That's great. People are taking real risks for this. And um, it, it's so much more involving to watch that kind of uh, explosion. That, that explosion's creepy for quite a few reasons anyway, because that particular location was said to be haunted and there were a lot of accidents. The reason they closed the road in the first place, it was a lot of accidents, a lot of deaths that occurred on the road Mm -hmm. and a lot of accidents and happenstance occurred 
during the making of that sequence, um, a lot of things where, I mean, some of them are even in the film, the whole sequence where there's the two lorries side by side and one pushes the other one into the side of the wall. Mm-hmm. That was an accident that they kept in. Yeah. And they built the sequence around because they liked it so much, but it wasn't meant to happen. And there were lots of other things where lorries were moved without anyone there in terms of like moving down the hill and things like that. And then also, even when they shut the bazooka off, the rocket, yeah. it actually hit someone like three miles away. But the main thing is that they obviously shot this explosion from quite a few angles because they could only really do it once. I think, uh, I can't remember, I think it might have been Neil Lamont, I think uh, Pete Lamont's son, or somebody mm-hmm. like somebody on set was taking stills of this explosion as well as obviously however many five or six cameras shooting at whatever mm. frames second to, to capture this explosion from whatever angle they wanted. And um, there's a particular still of this explosion where there's clearly like this big fire hand coming out of the explosion that has all these fingers. Yeah. But when they looked in all the rushes from all the other angles, no one could see it. Yeah, nobody could find so it. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. So yeah, there are lots of weird things that happened there. I mean, imagine them being too close to that explosion. There's even things where when those two tankers roll over at, just before that happens, yeah. they cleared loads of rocks for the stuntman to so he wouldn't fall on the rocks. But the way that the, the tankers fell, it actually ended up actually they'd moved the rocks to a different area mm-hmm. but in doing so he'd actually still landed on those rocks <laughs> so <laughs> it was like yeah it was just one of these I, I think everyone was happy to go away from that location once they'd done like no one was really happy yeah. filming there because it was just so weird it is one of the best action sequences <laughs> oh, in the entire well film the tanker, the tanker chase you were saying that it's actually uh, it was in John Glenn's mind for a few years. Yeah, he said he had an idea for a, a chase involving the tankers mm. for around about eight years in gestation, and it was yeah. just waiting for the right time to have a sequence like that, and obviously just fitted like a glove. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that worked hand in hand is because um, through doing the research of how drug cartels smuggled, the actual method of dissolving cocaine in gasoline, and what they used to do was actually hide it in planes, but having the idea of dissolving the cocaine and then distilling it back into its real form is actually a real thing. Oh, wow, actually, really? Yeah, yeah, that's actually something that is done. So I think the two things fitted hand in hand. So like, yeah, we've got yeah. this method of dissolving gasoline tankers. Oh, boom, there we are. Yeah. We've got this sequence. Oh, that's great. I think uh, one of the things that I do have to uh, acknowledge is it is kind of reminiscent or at least inspired by, it seems, Mad Max 2, Road yeah. Warrior. Yeah. It does have that element in that we do see it from both the ground and the air. There are these moving parts in, in it. But also, I think it has gone on to inspire some other tanker chasers. Mm. Like, I can't help but think that James Cameron must have been taking note while he was writing up his tanker chaser storyboard and his for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Oh, yeah. And also, there is a very reminiscent tanker chase at the beginning of Fast and Furious 4, I think. It's a lot more CGI, and it misses the point completely. I think that was actually the straw that broke the camel's back on the Fast and Furious franchise when they realized, oh, shit, we used too much CGI here. Let's go back to just doing practical stunts. And they did, and it works. And actually, the Fast and Furious franchise has grown to be... It reminds me a lot of Roger Moore era Bond. Yeah. In that people come up with these absolutely bonkers action set pieces and just kind of tie them together. And it's more based on, like, characters interacting with each other and visiting all these extravagant parts of the world while blowing <laughs> shit up. It's like, it's, it's campy in that same way that Roger Moore era Bond was. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it is reminiscent of other action sequences, but it definitely, definitely has gone on to inspire other action sequences, I would say. And it is one of the strongest action sequences of the 80s, I would say, definitely. There's so many elements to this as well. It's not one of those sequences that just has one thing in it, like has one stunt. There's so many different parts to it. I mean, there's two massive action sequences in the film, and they all have quite a lot of different stages mm-hmm. we've got trucks going into the rocks which is the unplanned accident one yeah we've got a rocket going underneath the truck and on its side which is a just a which brilliant is crazy because yeah. apparently these these rockets they run on wires so what they had to do they had to get the wire on the ground sort of like loose then they had to get the truck on its side which is a feat in itself and then when it was on its side and coasting they had to pull tension on this cable then set off the rocket and they actually built the rig originally to have like a stabilizer Stabilizers, on its side. Yeah. And then he just realized that the stuntman could actually, the stunt driver could actually just do it and yeah. had no need of the stabilizers yeah. whatsoever. It's funny though as well that Chris Cobalt, who's the, um, one of the special effects technicians, who's become massively successful in the field. I mean, he does literally anything that's big and yeah. has lots of practical effects, you'll know that his name's on it. I mean, he's mm-hmm. done everything. Like He's done all the James Bonds since then. Christopher Nolan as well. He's Christopher Nolan films, Christopher Nolan. Star Wars, yep. the new Star Wars. But he was talking about, he used to be able to do this, like, yeah, and uh, he went over a couple of times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we got a crane in and, and <laughs> took it back over. So yeah, it was just par for the course in the end, really. It's like huge, like, <laughs> feats of it. It would have taken, like, God knows, like an hour to get this thing back up again and yeah. whatever damage they've had to fix. He's just like, so kind of nonchalant like, about it. Like, yeah, that's just everyday work for me. Yeah. It's been very, very... Like I said, the, apparently, the more challenging the uh, prospect, the more laid back he gets. <laughs> so that apparently is from somebody who knows him personally. That's what happens, so... Yeah, I suppose you have to be quite cool when, you, yeah. when you're dealing with these kind of things that could potentially go wrong. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many moving parts. I mean, you've got that rocket, then you've got the little truck mm. on fire going over the plane when it goes over the cliff. You've got loads of tankers exploding in on each other. You've got, got ones going down a hill, mm-hmm. and then you've got them falling over at the end. The other tanker going through the fire in a wheelie. Mm-hmm. The sequence of Bond transferring from the plane to the tanker at 70 miles an hour. Yeah. Which actually they were going at 70 miles an hour. That's crazy. As well. And then you've got another truck-to-truck transfer as well. So, yeah, there's so many different things in the in the sequence. And then ending with that explosion at the end. And it's, yeah, it's just... Uh, it's just a really solid piece of yeah. work all round. We can talk it up. It is it's probably the best action sequence. It is the best action sequence in the film, but that's not to say that the other action sequences let down the slack at all. See, I think the thing that they do well with this film is... Um, in a way, it almost uses all of the Bond tropes in that you've got both land, water, and the air action sequences, and some of them that utilize like at least two or three of those elements. Are you trying to be Mark Forster? Earth, wind, and fire. <laughs> I want my action sequences to be earth, wind, and fire, because I'm a pretentious prick. Well, this actually does that, <laughs> but, but better. better. Yeah. <laughs> but um, especially the, um, oh, from the boat, what's it called? The seaplane sequence. Yeah, the seaplane yeah. sequence is great. Because that's something that we don't see in Bond anymore. I think uh, Skyfall has one little moment where Bond fights somebody in a lake. Yeah. But there's no longer any underwater action sequences. I think that they've kind of moved away from that now. They've, yeah. they've always come across as too slow, and I think this is the only one in the entire series that truly works yeah. as an action sequence. The thing is, because they keep it moving from one place to another, it's, yeah. not, it's not something where it gets stuck in a particular... 
thing like it's just an underwater sequence yeah. like it's an underwater sequence it's an aerial sequence it's on land as well like sort of, well, not on land but on yeah. boats from start to finish you've got bond coming in underneath the stingray then he grabs hold of the shark hunter 2 sub gets into the ship underneath in the actual the the hatch basically yep. and then he's in lupe's room with that whole moody sequence mm-hmm. then you get to see sharky his friend being killed yeah he, then he kills sharky's killer yeah it's like even that they introduce his henchman who has killed sharky it's like you even give him character and give him a payoff oh he yeah. has to be killed yeah it's it's great it's great just even those minor characters have been like just given those moments yeah he jumps back into the water steals the mask from the guy that he's just killed yeah and then the seaplane arrives they're doing the transaction, which is the money thing, which he ends up stealing in the end. So there's the money transaction. The drugs are in the little sub. He sabotages the sub by stabbing all the cocaine and, and yeah. getting all that. They discover him on the camera. The frogmen come in and attack. He has a fight underneath the water with the frogmen. Then the seaplane takes off. He grabs the harpoon, which the other guy was carrying shoots it at the seaplane manages to hit the seaplane yeah. and then all of a sudden it becomes a a barefoot water ski uh, yeah, it does. chase yeah. when he's barefoot skiing on the water then he manages to get onto the seaplane grabs onto the seaplane fights with the guys in the seaplane chucks them out and then gets away in the plane with the money yeah it's a great sequence <laughs> it really is again so many moving parts yeah. as well it's always moving forward and also it, it's not just there to be an action sequence it's telling the story it's telling it the story it's yeah. not just like even just quite a few bond action sequences where they're just there to get you from a to b mm-hmm. there's no action sequence in this film which just gets you from a to b even the opening title sequence it's one of the only proper opening title sequences that is truly centrally part of the main story yeah and the opening action sequence as well again it's another kind of aerial stunt was actually reused by uh, christopher nolan in the last dark knight film the mm. dark knight rises yeah yeah christopher nolan as we all know is a big bond film fan mm. and uh, the opening sequence in the dark knight rises in which bane's men take over the plane in which bane is being held captive in is pretty much cribbed entirely from pretty this much. film. It's like a, a larger scale version of that. Yeah, this is certainly laying the groundwork for that. And was yeah. that was was that possibly like um, Chris Corbold? Yeah, it's Chris yeah. Corbold. Uh, I mean, it was John Richardson that set it up, but yeah. I mean, Chris Corbold was part of his staff at the yeah, time. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we haven't actually talked about, and this is quite a significant part of it as well. The fact that this film was not made in the UK. Yeah, not a single shot actually came from yeah. the UK. They faced several challenges because of this. The reason. They had to change studio is the fact that cinema attendance in the late 80s was an all-time low. Yeah. And not many people were going to the cinema. And this was kind of around that time where uh, traditional cinemas were going out and the multiplexes were soon to follow. Mm. So well, it was wasn't... just before that sort of resurgence. Yeah. Well, this is the, what they've said as part of Thatcher's Britain, isn't it? Yeah. Is that um, the arts were cut as well. Yeah. Uh, quite significantly by the, the conservatives in power at that time. Yeah. And what had happened prior in sort of the mid-70s and early 80s in Bond films, they were able to raise quite a lot of capital from something called the ED levy, mm-hmm. which is basically a kind of subsidized film industry. Very similar to how I'd imagine France operates in terms of the way it subsidizes its film industry and the mm-hmm. fact that it was actually a, a direct tax on cinema tickets 
and what this was, this was like a um, an external tax on ticket prices and then fed back into the British film industry. Yeah. And they were able to fund quite a lot of films. And obviously, it basically meant that the more successful the film, the more money they got so they could yeah. make another successful film. But this was actually phased out in 1985. So they were now in a position where they didn't have that money available to them mm-hmm. because I know that saved their skin quite a few times, especially, uh, say, a film like Spy Love Me. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that was offset with the ED with, ED, with ED levy money, but they didn't have that now, and they'd got into a position where all of their films from Fiora's only onwards, mm-hmm. they all pretty much had the same budget, and obviously having the same budget, the cost cutting as inflation rose got tighter and tighter and tighter to the point where they literally couldn't afford to make the film. Mm-hmm. in the UK yeah. and also because the pound was very strong at that time in the late 80s so less and less international firms were coming over and making films uh, only big films like Indiana Jones were I able to make afford to, yeah. yeah. so this is kind of a very dark time for British film Cubby said we've got to film somewhere else they'd scouted like in China and there was problems cost wise and censorship wise filming there anyway so they scouted around the Bahamas and Florida and then Mexico and Cubby decided that could we make the film in Mexico? He suggested this to the production designer, Peter Lamont. And he said, if we go there, you're mad because the facilities are awful. And yeah. there's no structure there to, to really supplement what we need to do. And he basically said, if we don't make the film there, we don't make the film. Yeah. That's that. But they were able to save about 15% because of the difference in obviously labor costs and other mm-hmm. things. But it just meant that they had to lish to get to the studios and, yeah. and build quite a lot of things I imagine scratch. it made the actual filming much harder yeah but yeah. Um, even at a saving yeah especially at a saving because they said yeah, the, the people were great and the craftsmanship was great but it's just the fact that there was the facilities were showing their age I know there were loads of like holes in the sound stages mm-hmm. and things that needed to be repaired and things that like offices and design workshops that needed to be like rebuilt or built from yeah. scratch they said, like, if they'd had to build another set, they probably wouldn't have been able to do it because yeah. there would have been no surplus furniture to use because they'd used it all. They'd found everything they could find. So it was really tight. But at the end of the day, I mean, they pulled it off. I mean, Yeah, definitely. they certainly did, yeah. I think it actually helps the film because a lot of it is location as well. Oh, yeah. Like, they yeah. really maximised their usage of real locations. And um, I think it also it means that the film feels, both visually as well as its content, um, like a different type of animal than Roger Moore eras of Bond, where yeah. everything still feels like old Hollywoodish kind of thing. Uh, everything's a little bit overlit. Yeah. And although there are a few scenes in this film that are, do do suffer in the same way, they're certainly being more ambitious and more experimental with their lighting, and even throughout, even in their studio stuff like that. It's that scene where he's on the boat with the um, the shades across his face. Yeah, and it, it, it's like it makes him look scary. Yeah, it's like it's the. They're at least being more ambitious with this film. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some things that Alex Mills wanted to do with the film because obviously he knew that it was more, it was darker and it was more personal, and he yeah. wanted to have it look less pretty and 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 look more moody and nasty. But I think there were moments where I think his his hands were tied because I know that Cubby Broccoli liked things looking clean, clean, yeah, and pristine and clear. So there was no uh, opportunities to use any diffused light or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, it's like Everything he was afraid had... of shadows, really. And, yeah. And this, this film really needed that. I mean... Yeah. And to be honest, it's only really when we get into the Daniel Craig films that we are really allowed to, like, 
do some really interesting lighting. I mean, they start doing that actually from probably from Goldeneye, where yeah. actually it gets more adventurous with Goldeneye. But um, you can definitely see a difference. Yeah, in, oh, in, certainly. In yeah, definitely. Cubby's not there anymore, sort of thing. It's kind of a slightly, I'd say, um, visually inconsistent film for that because you do get these great moments where they are allowed to do these mm. like harsh contrasts, you know, darker scenes, more contrast between light and dark. And then there are other sort of internal indoor scenes where, um, like in the bank, um, yep. for instance, it, where it is a little, or in Sanchez's office or in the meetings and things like that, where it is a bit overlit. Yeah. Uh, and there needs to be a little bit darker and more moody, I'd say. But uh, I mean, they're, they're not, again, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's it, not, yeah. it's, it's, it definitely looks like of its time. It definitely looks like a late 80s film anyway. It does, yeah. Um, so you can't really blame it for that. And they're definitely moving in that direction. So yeah. it's definitely more positive steps. Again, the thing I just have to keep reminding myself as well is that it is only one film removed from Roger Moore era yeah. Bond. Yeah. So you can't expect the world so suddenly no. to change. One of the things that we do have to mention as well in terms of the filmmaking, that the music by Michael Kamen is actually different and probably makes it feel a little bit closer to those American action films yeah. that we were talking about. In fact, I would say that that's the thing that most lends it that type of identity as feeling a little bit American action because it does have a die-hardy, lethal weapon kind of vibe about it because he was the composer of these American action films. He was the guy that they got. He was the go-to guy and they got him for License to Kill. There were actually things where they had to like tone Michael Kamen down for this film because there was a thing where Michael Kamen wanted to use more well-known stars in the soundtrack, very much like he'd done with Lethal Weapon, like he wanted to use Eric Clapton in the soundtrack, and yeah. they were very resistant to that. And I think for good reason, because I feel like maybe some of those elements, especially in the Lethal Weapon score, I kind of feel are quite dated now. Yeah. Oh, maybe the, it, don't it, work so well. I, I agree on that front. But also, um, I did read that Eric Clapton did turn in a demo, and it was deemed as being too dark for the film. Mm. And instead, they went with Gladys Knight to kind of lend it this old-school, traditional Bond feel to it. And one of the very few elements that is old-school, traditional Bond, I actually think that the theme doesn't fit the film. It's a nice theme yeah, in, I like, in, and of its, uh, yeah. in and of itself, but it doesn't actually fit the film tonally. Yeah. But it's not as bad as, let's say, Spectre, in which the song is both crap and doesn't fit the film. Well, I say even with Spectre, neither version of the song, even the, the much better. It, yeah, the Radiohead version is so much better, still doesn't fit the film. No, no. In fact, it probably would have fit this film more. <laughs> yeah, what but, enough, um, yeah. I like the song in of itself. It's actually one of my favourite Bond themes, but yeah, it does kind of... Feel slightly odds, but at the same time, it yet yeah, does fit into that late eighties aesthetic. It, yeah, so it, it definitely does, does feel yeah. of its time. Uh, there's and I know they with... were going for more the point of view of the woman character. Yeah, like in that. And also, they had a deal with um, MCA Records, so all the musical acts in the film, um, Patti LaBelle, who also recorded a version of License to Kill mm-hmm. herself, who did the end title song. Yeah. And there's two other songs in the middle of the film: the song that plays at the wedding and the song that plays oh, of in course, the yeah. club. But no, I, I really like the score for License to Kill. And I kind of like the way that they... I mean, they did get him because he was the next best thing to John Barry, who was ill at the time mm-hmm. and couldn't do it. So they decided to get him. And in a way, I think, yeah, it's probably better that they did get someone slightly different to do it because, yeah, you get all these John Barry-esque elements, but it definitely has a much more darker, edgy yeah. sound to it. Yeah, and I, and I do like the way in which it does implement the James Bond theme. And also that Michael Kamen also has the um, the site when... 
they know how to use him and where not to use him because during that tanker chase, the first half of that tanker chase is actually unscored. So mm. when you do get the James Bond theme coming in, it comes in with a real punch. Yeah. You know, it has an impact. And I like that. I think the other big thing that they did as well was at the very start, literally the opening seconds of the film, which uh, you will have heard of at the right at the beginning of this podcast, because I like to use the, the opening Bond for that particular yep. film, is the fact that the music for that gun barrel sequence is very different from pretty much all the other gun barrel sequences. Yeah. It doesn't, a lot of the other gun barrel sequences, they take their nod from the first one. Yeah. They're all variations on the same theme, whereas this, the opening bars are completely different to yeah. basically say we're yeah, in this, a different film guys this is not your father's bond yeah you know because um, it does that doom 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 that kind of thing <laughs> and it's really cool and it's completely different to uh, anything else that we've heard before or since actually and again it's an experimentation that we love the film for that mm. but is also probably one of the reasons why it didn't connect ah. do you remember when all the kind of like I say diehard fans I don't really think they are I just think they are um, extremist fans let's yeah. call them do you remember when um, Skyfall came out and they didn't get to use the gun barrel sequence at the beginning of the film again how upset they were yeah. about that and people were actually like denouncing it as a Bond film saying no it's 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 not Bond if it doesn't have this at the beginning it yeah. all got, they all sound a bit Alan Partridge when it goes that <laughs> way I think anytime you do an impression of somebody talking about Bond in that way it all goes a bit Alan Partridge <laughs> it does it's not Bond it's, yeah <laughs> stop getting Bond wrong <laughs> The music video for License to Kill was actually directed by Danny Kleinman. Oh, was it? Oh, that was his, yeah. his first foray into the world of Bond. And obviously, after Morris Binder's death, because like we're saying, this is the end of an era for Yeah, everything a lot of changes people. after this Everything film. changes, yeah. Danny Kleinman ended up doing the title sequences bar one film um, mm. from this point. So, yeah, it's a real end of an era, because this is the last film that Cubby Rockley actually actively produced. So it's a massive end of the era in that respect. But also, this is the last film that John Glenn directed, Alec Mills, DOP, the last film that Arthur Wooster, who was a second unit director, mm. filmed in any major capacity because they'd all been on the last five films. And also, the last film that either Richard Maybaum had actually wrote because they were let go shortly mm-hmm. after the failure of this film. And also, Morris Binder because he died in 1991. So, yeah, a lot of people... This is their last James Bond film. And it's a shame that it didn't hit as well as it should have. But I'm glad that in the later years it has grown a sort of following. Mm. Um, me and you are amongst that following, most yeah. certainly. But I think there could be no better time than now to actually start really giving these films their due. And also t- to say as well that it was an end of an era film for all of these kind of old guard filmmakers. It's a testament to how good they are that this film managed to come out so experimental and so progressive in the way that it was made as a Bond film. Yeah. That it actually, like I say, it was ahead of its time. Yeah. That all the time we are proved by these kind of old guard filmmakers and we got it just last year with Fury Road from George Miller that it doesn't matter how old a person is because they can still make a fucking film. And oh, these yeah. guys made a fucking film with License to oh, Kill. Oh, yeah. And uh, even to this day, John Glenn always actively states that License to Kill was the best film they ever made. Yeah. And it definitely is. I mean, it there is. are some other high points of his career, but this is definitely the, the most consistent and where everything comes together. Yeah. It's one of those films that I can just always go back to and always get something out of. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that this being in the end of an era, the, the really upbetting thing that this, unbeknownst to anyone, was 
Timothy Dalton's second and final performance as James Bond. And um, it's kind of weird that he was still known as the current James Bond up until about 1994. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, a real shame that we never got to see a third or a fourth film from him. It truly because, is a shame. Um, I'd like to see what Goldeneye would have turned out. like. Yeah. Would... Because that, in essence, is a Timothy Dalton film. Like, we were saying, like, oh, Goldeneye's always the best received of all the Pierce Brosnan films. And, and in fact, the thing is, it's not a Pierce Brosnan film. It's it's a film that was written for Timothy Dalton. Yeah, it's and, like a Living Daylight type situation reversed. Yeah, because, like, in fact, it was meant... I mean, um, they talked about it for even for License to Kill, but in Michael Francis' initial draft of Goldeneye, the, uh, one of the major characters was meant to be the character of Pushkin, who mm-hmm. was the one of the main characters in Living Daylights, and he was meant to come back into it. Yeah. And John Reese davis was very open to coming back as Pushkin in that, um, as long as it was sort of a major part of the story. There was a whole uh, angle where the, the villain was meant to be like a, a past mentor. Who was, yeah. They were talking about Anthony Hopkins for the role at that time. But yeah, it was very much a Timothy Dalton film, and yeah, it was definitely more in that kind of revenge category where they'd gone down that road in The License to Kill, where this was somebody that has been a former friend and has let him down, and he's got to put him down now. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, what does that feel like? They kind of watered that down slightly in, yeah. in the Pierce Brosnan, but it's very um, very obvious that it was written for Timothy Dalton. Yeah, it is. Uh, it really it's, is. It's all the more exemplified by the fact that for some weird fucked up reason, everything that people liked about Goldeneye, they seem to just suddenly jettison yeah, when yeah. they do the other films. As they move forward. It's I really mean, strange. Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, like I say, there are some elements that are really ahead of its time, but it's <laughs> it's like a leap and a jump in the wrong direction in some yeah. ways. It really is. They went to embracing the goofy elements so quickly, and mm. I wonder if it's the shadow of License to Kill's failure like loomed long. Yeah, it definitely did, because obviously at the end of the day, you've got a film that effectively almost killed the franchise yeah i mean there were lots of other things a lot a lot of other events that contributed to it being dormant for so long i mean the, the blame definitely can't be all solely no laid at license to kill's feet but it definitely played a part the fact that oh no we've got all these legal ramifications mm-hmm. all these other repercussions but our last film didn't do so well so we're very vulnerable right now yeah cubby broccoli almost sold the company uh not a great time and it's a real shame that Timothy Dalton got caught up in all that. He deserves so much more. He really did. And he, deserve, he deserves some, a much better reception than he ended up getting at the time and, and what he's kind of getting now in the advent of the Daniel Craig films, but deserves a lot more. I think it's worth looking into the other reasons why this film wasn't well-received. I mean, there's a couple of different things, and obviously we'll go into the numbers more in a minute, but there's another major thing yeah. before that that we can go into. The, and obviously we mentioned it before, the fact that this film is the only James Bond film that had a title change yes, in the was. middle of its production. Yeah. From and License that, Revoked to License to Kill. Yeah, and that totally messed up the marketing campaign because it basically meant that whatever marketing campaign had been established already or, or was in the works had to completely change. Now, the other factor in the marketing campaign that went slightly awry is that they brought in some new people that had different ideas about... Um, maybe bringing the marketing for Bond up to date because previous to this film a lot of the marketing campaigns and uh, and I actually prefer them really but they've generally been graphical based like mm-hmm. based around paintings or graphics yeah. rather than actually photography but what they wanted to do was uh, modernize Bond and go for more of a photographic look which a lot of other films were starting to do around that time yeah 
And uh, the other thing they wanted to do was to change the image. So get him out of the tuxedo, open it up, um, get him without the jacket, just strip everything down, which I'm fine with because that's the whole... I mean, they wanted to make... It, and Timothy Dalton with his wardrobe and everything. Yeah. The other thing I forgot to mention as well is that with the wardrobe, they had a new costume designer on this film who'd come over from Miami Vice and uh, she was kept wanting to put James Bond in pastels and Timothy Dalton wasn't <laughs> having any of it. So, But there was a lot of things where, yeah, they were changing the way that he dressed. They had already started that with Living Daleks anyway. Yeah. Um, but it's just in terms of the way that he was... Bond marketing because obviously in living daylights on the poster is in his tuxedo and obviously in this film he's in an open shirt and everything there was a lot of um unease about the campaign so i think it's one of those things because it's new and different and people had different opposing views i think it ended up coming out a little bit half-baked yeah and that combined with the the title change so late yeah it just meant the advertising wasn't out as soon as it should have been and no. things weren't pushed as soon as they should have been and obviously with films these days some of them some of like some of the advertising is crazy like obviously batman versus Superman. yeah you can easily get a mid-budget film that will match its budget in advertising i imagine deadpool the advertising for deadpool probably cost more than the actual film cost yeah. to make whereas this was the other way around where yeah. it was timed wrong and also was badly funded because yeah. of this half-baked nature it was actually underfunded the marketing campaign for this one whereas yeah, nowadays you get films like batman versus superman where they have a teaser trailer out 12 months before the yeah, film comes out. I mean, Suicide Squad, look at that. That was over a year. It's getting to the other end of the spectrum now where there's too much. Um, yeah, where really. people are peaking in terms of anticipation way before the films are actually released. Yeah. And by the time the films have come out, it's like, oh, hasn't it already? Yeah. And there was uh, one last thing that I think we have to note in terms of uh, it being bungled in some way. Well, not bungled, but the BBFC actually came down pretty hard on them with the yeah. rating. And uh, you met, were mentioning to me earlier that this film actually missed off the 12 rating by two months. Yeah, well, they managed to get a PG-13 for America because PG-13 had been implemented mm -hmm. back then. But in Britain, the 12 certificate, which is pretty much used universally now, yeah. hadn't been implemented yet. And they were literally yeah, two months off. The very first film to get a 12 rating in the UK was Batman yeah. in August. And this came out in June, I think. The BBFC came down really hard on the film, especially in terms of some of its violence. I mean, because it is a very bloody film. Not only did we get heads exploding in graphic style, which is an amazing sequence, yeah. but there's people being eaten by sharks. And also, the one that we haven't mentioned yet, but Benicio del Toro is fed into a human shredder, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and and we it's, also get it's graphic. Yeah. We also get Sanchez being set on fire. Oh, of course, And we also yeah. get the uh, the quite brutal whipping of, of Lupe at the beginning of the film of as course, well. Of course, yeah. And, we, and we just some of the connotations as well, like yeah. uh, carving the guy's heart out and things like that. They came around really hard on it, and they would not budge with the 15 certificate. So automatically, they've lost a whole heap of revenue, mm -hmm. a whole heap of audience just down to that fact. And it's a shame. Yeah, another shame to yeah. the grand list of shames. I know because they were just trying to break new ground. I mean, all this kind of groundbreaking just led to lots of problems because it was just, I think it was just because it wasn't expected. They were like, a Bond film doing this? Yeah. We've, How we've, outrageous. We've had this formula for decades. Yes. Why are they changing it now? You're doing Bond wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, there's so many more things we can go into, but I think that kind of, wraps it up really i mean we've gone through pretty much every major part of the yeah i think the film i mean there are definitely more parts of the film that we could discuss but 
I think we've demonstrated just why this film has failed. And some of what we see are its greatest strengths, where at the box office, its greatest weaknesses. Yeah. So I think we've discussed the film enough for the moment. And it's time for us to actually start to look at just how this film was forgotten and the kind of money it made at the time and the reception it, it had. So, yeah, it's time for us to move on to the stats and the facts. So first off, let's move over to the critics. Now, I have the Rotten Tomatoes score here, and obviously this has garnered some later ratings, which uh, there's people yeah. like looking at the Blu-ray releases and the DVD yeah. release, and it's a lot more favourable than you would think. It's a certified fresh film with 77%. It's an average rating of 6.1 out of 10. This is over 52 reviews. And the critics' consensus is, License to Kill is darker than many of the other Bond entries with Timothy Dalton playing the character with intensity, but it still has some solid chases and fight scenes. Now, the thing to note about that is that they reference it being a darker entry and Timothy Dalton's performance as intense. They mention that almost as if it's a negative. Yeah. Like, oh, but it still has some great action sequence, guys. Yeah. Whereas I'd say in some ways, I wouldn't say he's made to look tame by some of the things that are done with these type of characters these days, but because they've embraced that side of the character so openly now, yeah. it's weird to see them speak about it when it's experimented with here yeah. in License to Kill. I'm actually surprised it got a 77% rating considering yeah. just how hard the critics did come down on it at the time. Yeah, because I was saying like that as a rating now, I mean, I'd say that for me is just far too low. Yeah. like I would definitely say it needs to be in, like, in the 80s high 80s really for me yeah and that definitely that 6.1 it means to be more sort of like in the sevens and eights oh definitely really yeah as for our reviews our chosen reviews this week um i do have a clip from ebert and siskel on their show from uh, 1989 and here they review license to kill our first film is the latest james bond adventure and my basic reaction is that the picture is uneven ranging from quite exciting to tedious with Roger Moore now thankfully out of the picture, Timothy Dalton returns as 007, and the result is a more traditional character, less the wise guy, more the gutsy hard worker, and I like that difference. Naturally, License to Kill has plenty of action scenes. The best involves Bond trying to hook the drug dealer's airplane as sort of an airborne fisherman. That's kind of fun. Some of the other action scenes run on too long, as does the whole movie. If we get the point, they should move this thing quicker to its conclusion. The film also has sort of a dirty, unfinished look that I can't explain. They spend so much money on these pictures, I can't understand why this isn't just more crisp and good looking. But Timothy Dalton is solid as Bond. Robert Davi is a good villain, although the villain itself, the character as written, isn't that uh, powerful. He doesn't seem like a classic Bond villain who's going to take over the world. There isn't a lot of romance there. Uh, he just looks like another drug dealer. I have to give the film, therefore, a mixed review. I can't recommend it enthusiastically, sort of reluctantly. It's a real close call for me. I give it thumbs down. Thumbs up for me. I liked it, I guess, a lot more than you did. And one of the things I noticed was that they are trying, at last, to make the Bond pictures a little more contemporary in feeling. Uh, That's the I'm not sure. Part. That, yes, I'm not sure that I was happy that the villain this time is a quasi-realistic South American drug kingpin. I liked That's, it better yes. when we had the gold fingers, you know, exactly. who were going to take over the entire world. Yes. I don't like, I, I, I'm getting tired of drugs as a subject I, uh, I am, of, right there. of movies and an excuse for evil in movies. But apart from that, I think the Dalton character this time, Timothy Dalton's performance, has really found its stride. I think he is, has turned out to be a very good choice for James I Bond. I think so. He's more matter-of-fact. He's a little harder, a little tougher, a little leaner. Uh, less obsessed with sex, more involved in action. It's more of a, of, a, of a performance that seems to realize that we've now had all the Rambo pictures, the Indiana Jones pictures, action pictures that have come along since James Bond and that were, were uh, threatening, I think, 
to make the whole series seem sort of obsolete. Did you think, when I, you were sort of nodding, I, I could see out of the corner of my eye when I was talking about the dirty look of the film. Didn't that surprise you? I don't know, what, uh, I don't know what's wrong there. There were a couple of, of missing shots, missing transitions. Uh, feelings that we got from one place to another place without it being explained. But I'm talking as about art direction. I mean, really... Oh, that didn't bother me. One thing I liked in terms of art direction and stunt coordination was the final chasing involving mm -hmm. those three gigantic gasoline tankers down mm -hmm. that twisting mountain road. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is as sensational a chase sequence as we've seen in any Bond picture. So I, I like that. It's not a bad picture. Even this conversation, though, reflects the mixed nature or mixed reaction I had to the picture. So it seems that there's been a bit of a conflict here and mm. Siskel is representing kind of the old Bond fan, it yeah. seems. That. But I'm glad to see that they both actually, despite having different opinions, they both are joined together in the kind of appreciation of Timothy Dalton. And they both see it as Timothy Dalton being a good choice for the character. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, definitely agree more with Roger Ebert. Oh, certainly, one. yeah. Yeah, I don't know where any of the boring bits are. No, no. No. I mean, the only bits I would say are a little bit boring are all the, the, sort of the bits where they lapse into old Bond territory, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This film is just, was just so unexpected at the time mm. and just really wrong-footed people. Well, I think... Ebert's right in that he says it's, um, again, a contemporary and realistic portrayal of Bond. Mm. And that's exactly where they're going. It seems that he got that and kind of loved it. Yeah. But if you didn't like that review, you're going to hate our next oh. one, which is from Empire. And they awarded the film two out of five stars. Bastards. And this is a review from Tom Hibbert. And he says... He may look the part, but Timothy Dalton fails the boots, the scuba gear, and the automobiles left to him by Moore and Connery. Even the villains have been watered down. There's no Jaws, no gloriously mad Gert Frober as Goldfinger, no loony Donald Pleasance, just Robert Darby as Sanchez. If he didn't have an iguana on his shoulder and a very bad complexion, there would be nothing much to tell us that Sanchez is an evil person at all compared to, with the villains of old. Really? I I can I don't know I don't understand this review whatsoever. It's this actually guy, quite laughable. The, the, obviously, this Tom uh, Hibbert really likes whipping people yeah. uh, and feet and blowing people's heads. Yeah, Robert Darby is a bad dude in this film and it's de that's demonstrated from the oh, beginning fuck. he feeds a man to a shark Ugh. openly he says as well that he won't kill him he's gonna live the rest of his life a cripple i just don't get this review it seems that people are like pining for really over-the-top theatrics and this is somebody that i think has missed the point completely in terms of talking about that scale thing we were earlier yeah uh, just because what's at stake is big doesn't mean it means anything to us. Yeah. And it seems that he's pining for those kind of world at stake theatrics that this film is just not interested and in. And you know whatsoever. what? This is this is the, probably the funniest thing. These are probably the same people that gave a view to a killer bad review for being a tired version of Goldfinger. Yeah. Because basically a view to a killer is a, a retread of the Goldfinger is, yeah. plot and it has all those kind of elements, but they're just really tired. But yeah, he probably would have given the, the bad review for the same reasons that it has those things, but yeah. Bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. Well, he's pining for the Bond of old while being completely oblivious to the fact that Dalton's Bond is the Bond of the future. Yeah. I guess people get so stuck in a formula for so long yeah. that that just becomes expected and any kind of deviation is, it's like, whoa, I'm out of my safe zone Yeah, with this film. And this film certainly puts Bond fans out of their safety. Yeah, whereas, safe zone. whereas now it's the opposite way around. Obviously, like, like Spectre got criticized for being too safe. Yeah, exactly. And, well, it's got many, many other issues, but one of its big issues is that, it, yeah, it was too safe and, and reveled in the past far too much yeah. and didn't take enough risks. And also in taking risks uh, really 
strive for substance because I think yeah. that's one the two things are connected. If you take more risks, you're probably going to get more substance. Exactly. Yeah. I think. Whereas if you're falling back on old safe things, then everything becomes very flimsy and transparent. Mm-hmm. So moving on to the box office, uh, you have our figures. So this didn't pan out very well for the box office either. It is interesting to note that even adjusted for inflation, this is still the lowest grossing Bond film of all time. Mm-hmm. The actual budget for this film was $36 million. Its American gross was $34.6 million. Wow. Which, considering it's $2 million under its actual budget, is is incredibly low. Like, really, really low. It is. That only actually accounted for 22% of its actual overall so gross. So it's still kind of hit with audiences worldwide. It yeah. just lost, literally Basically, lost America. The main thing that people always talk about with this film that it failed to find an American audience, but it mm. did well everywhere else. So it basically did standard business in every other territory, but just for some reason, and I think we touched on it before, the fact that it was probably too, uh, American. too Americanized, yeah. really, that people wanted to see the more British James Bond, which I still think is a bit weird because... Timmy the Dalton is really British. Yeah. Yeah, they just didn't warm to it at all. And I think, again, the marketing campaign uh, contributed to that. And also just the fact that it this was also the last James Bond film to date that's been released in the summer. I mean, traditionally, at that, that, that time at least, Bond, it was a summer movie. And then had been released in the summer ever since, I think, Diamonds or at least Living Like Die or something yeah. like that. Actually, no, no, Spy Love Me, actually, because they released Man of the Golden Gun at Christmas time and it, it flopped. Or didn't do so well. So from then on, pretty much every other Roger Moore film and Timothy Dalton film had been released in the summer. But actually, this is the last one that they ever did at the summer, just down to the competition. Yeah. And now it's always released sort of October, November, December. Yeah. In, within that three month time period, sort of towards the end of the year. And it's done far better out of it. I mean, we've never had any numbers dip off this low ever since. Far in, yeah, it made $121.5 million. And yeah, it had an opening weekend in the States of 8.7 million, which is, yeah, very, very low. But the thing we need to have a look at, we have to see what films this was opening up against. Of and, course we do. And yeah. this also explains why they never released a, another Bond film in the summer release period ever again so we've got in its second week at number one lethal weapon 2 which it made 17 million mm-hmm. and that's a 15 percent drop off from the previous week so you can see how well that was doing well and that goes to show just as we're talking about this is more an, of an american type film bond mm. why would american audiences that like that kind of thing go to see that when they've got lethal weapon yeah in the charts already yeah. batman at number two in its fourth week and that had made $15 million, and that was a 21% yeah. drop-off from the previous week. So these were films that Really were, minor drop-offs as yeah, well. Yeah, In number three, we've got Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in its fourth week, and that made $8.8 million. Yeah. Then we've got License to Kill in at number four in its first week. So coming in at number four for a James Bond film is it's, very, very low. Oh, it's Usually coming at number two or yeah, number one. It's a true, true flop material, to yeah. be honest. Then we've got a reissue of Disney's Peter Pan. Even that makes $5.6 million. That's a reissue. Yeah. Number six, we've got Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in its eighth week that made $4.6 million, and that's only 11% drop-off from the previous this week. This is a killer of a week. Yeah, this and is... then <laughs> number seven, we've got Ghostbusters 2 <laughs> in its fifth week, which made $4.3 million with a 17% drop-off because it's Ghostbusters 2. People <laughs> yeah. are starting to realise it's not that good. At number eight, we've got Dead Poets Society, in its seventh week, which made $4.2 million. 
<laughs> and then nine and ten, I'm not really sure of these ones. We've got Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, Weekend at Bernie's. Which is I know that one. Week, yeah. 3.7 million dollars, and then Do the Right Thing at number Spike ten. Spike Lee film, yeah. So yeah, you that's don't know a... Weekend at Bernie's? No, I've never seen it. Weekend at Bernie's is when two guys turn up at their um, boss's pad holiday home, mm. and he's dead. Oh, all right. Pretend he's alive for a while and like prop him up and stuff <laughs> like that at parties. All right. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's truly, truly a classic. Oh wow! But yeah, that week's killer. It is. It is a so giant many, killer of a week. There's so many classic films in that in that week as well, like films that have still talked about and being remade to this day. Yeah. <laughs> Like they're making Lethal Weapon into a TV series. Batman's yep. been rebooted twice. Yep. Honey, Ghostbusters. Honey, I Shrunk is... the Kids is probably going to get remade soon. Yep. Indiana Jones, obviously. Ghostbusters remade. Dead Poet Society. I'm thinking that's probably going to re- they're remaking Jumanji. So why not Dead Poet Society? <laughs> um, fuck. Yeah, that's Jumanji uh... starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson. But that's a really bad week to open up on. It is. Yeah. And like, yeah, if we just look at the uh, adjusted gross, we can look at the highest one at the time, which is still a lot higher than Skyfall, actually. Because obviously, adjusted for inflation, Skyfall's still the most successful overall. But domestically, in terms of American, it adjusted, it made $324 million. When we compare that against Thunderball, that, in America, at the time when it was released, adjusted for inflation, made six hundred and forty, <laughs> just under $642 million. Yeah. Which is f- ridiculous money. It's, it is, yeah. And... Um, when we compare that to License to Kill, which is right at the bottom, at number 25, it uh, made 74.9. Yeah. That's just... Uh, it's it's, it's a really quite... Bad. It's a massive gap, isn't it? Mm. It's a shame. It's a shame. You can see the downward spiral, though, because even The Living Daylights was is only at number 23 with 112. So you can see that over the 80s, actually... The American audiences were slowly going off Bond they anyway. They just lost so their grip really, on I them, I don't yeah. really think that it's... Indicative of the quality of the film. No. Also just like an audience falling out with the character. Yeah, because for... three of the last five films are, are from the 80s. You've only got Man with the Golden Gun and Honor Majesty's down the bottom. The rest of it's Living Daylights and A V to a Kill. And then you've got Never Say Never Again above that. And then Fiora's Only. And then Octopussy. The highest, yeah. the highest 80s film is Octopussy. And, and what number is that? 15. So it's not... So, yeah. Yeah. So it's just clearly indicative that audiences were not demanding Bond films. Uh, increasingly less. Decreasingly, even. Yeah. But yeah, that kind of uh, wraps it up. It uh, does, yeah. All that's left for me to ask is just the two questions I ask at the end of every episode. And I think we've probably answered them about 14 times over <laughs> within this episode. Uh, but are you any... Closer to understanding why License to Kill has been forgotten. Now, I, I think there's a few things that we say the marketing was botched. Um, there was issues with the rating. There was um, audiences had started to fall out of touch with Bond as well. Yeah. And it was just too much of a risk. It took too many risks, which benefits us now yeah. looking back, but really damaged Bond back then. Yeah. And you know what? I I would always rather a film take risks and kind of fail. Yeah. Than not take risks at all. And at the end of the day, even when you factor into what it made versus how much it cost to make and probably what the marketing budget was, it didn't lose anybody any money. No, not whatsoever. This is a very similar situation. I mean, it's still a little bit worse than that, but very similar situation to Honor Majesty's where yeah. a film underperforms based on its initial expectations. Exactly. By yeah. no means loses anybody any money. Still did solid business, but just didn't do stellar business. Yeah. And that's the main problem. And it's a shame that this 
put Eon on the wrong foot, really, in yeah. terms of where they took Bond next. Perhaps not for Goldeneye, perhaps not for its immediate future, no. but for the future after that, I think yeah. it did have an effect. And I think it's important to say as well that I do not blame License to Kill for this. I no. blame you, late 80s action audiences, yes, for failing to turn up to this film. American late 80s action audiences. He's so far removed from that it is, lethal yeah. weapon thing. It really is. It's content. It's it still so feels different. like a Bond film. Yeah. It, there's, it's still got enough of a Bond film there. It feels unique to me. It feels like, yeah. by being a hybrid, it's its own thing, really. Yeah. It uses the best parts. It uses the right parts of those kind of American action films and doesn't trade over its identity in the process. No. It still feels like Ian Fleming's Bond. Mm. So, I mean, this is a no-brainer for me to ask, but mm. is License to Kill one of the best of the Forgotten films, or should it be best forgotten? Over to you, Andy. This is a tough one. I think this film should be put on loop 24 hours a day <laughs> on its own channel for people to watch. I love James Bond, and I say this is not one of just one of my favourite James Bond films. This is one of my favourite films, full stop, because it's, bar a couple of things, so well made, and it's it's... There's so much to mine out of it as well. I mean, every single time I watch it, I always get something new out of it. If you've not seen it before, just throw away <laughs> any preconceptions of what you may have about Bond. Yeah. Sort of cinematic Bond and just watch it as its own thing and then just see where that takes you because there's, there's so, it's so exciting and interesting. I mean, I have to agree. I think it's one of the highest of the best of the forgotten films that we've covered on this show. And um, there's nothing really more for me to add that I haven't already said during the episode. Uh, it's um, it's strong for all the reasons that it didn't connect with audiences mm. uh, and it took risks and it did things with Bond that perhaps n have not even been done since. And I like that it provides us with a Bond that is both challenging and both different than what we've seen before, but also both truer to Ian Fleming. Yeah, It's a shame that we haven't seen that type of Bond since. We've seen it in Daniel Craig, but we haven't seen somebody like outsmart his villain in the same mm. way that this one does and play it so close and put his, himself on the line so much. Mm. and uh yeah so I, I i think this film is fantastic i think it's one of the the best bond films it certainly ranks in my top three i would say mm. really quite highly and um I, yeah i'm very fond of it so definitely one of the best of the forgotten and that's all we have time for on this week's episode of best forgotten movies be sure to like share and subscribe you can also find us on facebook and twitter at b4 movies so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes also, if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. Join us next week when we'll be swapping guns and girls for dice, boards, and 40-year-old virgins as we take on the board game movie Dungeons and Dragons. But until then, it's bye from myself and au revoir from Andy. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>